4: I had to change the introduction because Sophie said it would confuse people. So now we're just doing the boring thing and saying the actual name of the show, which is It Could Happen Here. Um, It's a show about the fact that uh, the society's kind of falling apart uh, or changing, depending on your perspective of things. And people need to prepare for what's coming, which is a world of greater instability and economic collapse and rising authoritarianism and uh, increasing fights uh, in order to reverse and stymie all of those terrible things. Um, and you know, one of the things I've seen in some early feedback from, um, other stuff I've done on other shows and also from earlier episodes of this is people who will go like, Hey, everything you're saying about mutual aid is rad, but I live in X town in whatever state. And there's, there's nothing here. There's not, not an organized, uh, left. I don't, I don't know of any mutual aid groups. Um, how can I get involved or like how could I start my own organization and and try to get people involved? And then the ad- another thing we get asked a lot is like, hey, what you're saying about building resiliency and and preparing for uh, difficult times, gardening and whatnot sounds great, but I'm poor as shit and I live in a tiny apartment um, or whatever I, I I have no resources or no room um, even if you're not don't have much, enough money, like I'm in the middle of some a horribly dense city. So th- this week we're gonna be talking, Around those subjects in a number of different ways. And to kind of kick us off, uh, I've got, of course, Garrison with me. Uh, woke him up at nine in the morning. How are you doing, Garrison?
5: Un- ungodly early.
4: Yeah, it's it's <laughs> it's hideous. It's hideous. Um, and then Margaret Killjoy, who's up at a much more reasonable hour because time zones are a wild ass thing. Margaret, how do you... How do, we, how do we introduce you? You're an author. Uh, you're a, a, a writer of fiction. Uh, you host a podcast called uh, Live Like the World is Dying, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, you've had me on, and you talk about a lot of the same things we talk about in It Could Happen Here. We're actually shamelessly stealing your your, your <laughs> podcast in order to uh, make it corporate and sold out. How are you doing, Margaret?
6: Uh, I'm, I'm excited to be part of the corporate sold out uh, version it's great. of my own podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and actually very glad that you all do a wider audience thing. But um, I think that is a decent way to introduce me. I do a lot of different things, and I've been doing also like organizing and trying to seek radical political change for about 20 years um, to various degrees of success. Actually, mostly not to any success because (laughs) we actually still live in maybe a worse society than we were in 2002. 20 years ago. Yeah. Yeah. I tell people that I, I dropped out of college to ride freight trains and overthrow the government and I wasn't good at either of those things Cause I mean you have all your limbs that's true I do have all mm-hmm. of my limbs yeah Yeah. Um. <laughs> and I'm not so, in prison
4: and you're not in prison um, which is really all anyone can ask of the universe um, so you have started a number of organizations in your career as an activist and kind of that hat and I guess let's start with like yeah, somebody who lives in a place, there's no kind of really really organized left. There's probably not, in a lot of these places, much of even like a Democratic Party. There's mm-hmm. certainly not mutual aid efforts. Um, and I do think that there's a well, – well, mutual aid as a concept is, is pretty firmly rooted in anarchism. There's mutual aid kind of organizations that are, are not – particularly leftist or at least people doing stuff like that. Like I think a good recent example would be the Cajun Navy who did a lot of rescues after the most recent set of hurricanes where certainly not a left or an anarchist organization, but Mm -hmm. a lot of what they're doing is, um, is, is, uh, a community aiding itself. Um, so I don't know, where, where do we, where where do you want to start here?
6: Well, I guess, I mean, specifically, in disaster times you don't necessarily work with the people that you would assume that you're yeah. expecting to work with and you know one of the one of the stories that really sticks with me is like a friend of mine who's this you know um train riding anarchist with covered in tattoos and and all of that and during flood relief in eastern north carolina was like flying into storms in small planes with libertarians mm-hmm. because the people who are willing to fly small planes into storms and own planes tend to be the more libertarian side of things. And so here's anarchists and libertarians working together to get people what they need. And one of the things that I try cuz this is one of the biggest questions I think that the left faces and you know people trying to make the world better faces is how do we get people involved and also how do people get involved if no one's helping them get involved? And um I don't have all the answers about it, but it's something that I I think about obsessively some a lot. And one of the things that I really try and focus on with people is, is people say, well, I want to be prepared. And you talk about community being a very important part of preparedness, but I don't feel like I have a community because we live in a very isolated society. And one of the main things I try and remind people, though, is that in the same way that property relations break down, like someone's like, oh, I don't have any stuff. And if the apocalypse comes, what will I do? And like, well, the, kind of the answer is that like once property relations break down, there's a lot of stuff and it's very available. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> there, there will be much stuff around. <laughs> yeah. Like warehouses exist full yeah, of stuff. Yeah. And, yeah.
4: Amazon warehouses are going to become like fun boxes. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, Slash and, fortified <laughs> outposts, allegedly. Yeah. Yeah.
6: And community is, is the same way. Not that you would go raid community, but instead that... Um, some people you can, will. Yeah, it's true. And, <laughs> but you can, you can create community in mm-hmm. times of crisis in a way that's actually harder to do when the existing social order exists. And, and the, the, the thing I always say, uses my, my dumb example of this about how people come together during times of crisis, is you know, when I'm waiting for the bus in you know, some city or something, and no one talks to each other if you don't know each other until the bus is like 5 minutes late and then everyone is comparing notes about where they think they saw the bus last and and everyone's friends and sharing snacks and things you know so on some ways i'm i'm like be optimistic if you don't already know a community
4: yeah and i i think there's also things you can do that don't necessarily cost a lot of money to mm-hmm. both kind of build resiliency and kind of community connections now one of those things I've had a lot of friends in different cities work for there there will be different farming co-ops right and and generally the arrangement is you volunteer some sort of time helping them with you know there's a lot of shit work on farms and in return you generally get some amount of produce or whatever but really what you're getting is practical experience uh, growing food and you're meeting the kind of people who are interested in growing their own food and you know those kind of connections can be really helpful when things get worse and so I think it doesn't necessarily it doesn't have to cost much to to try building community now or to at least try putting yourself in some of the spaces where the kind of people you might want to be in the kind of people you you might want to know when things get worse might be.
6: Yeah. And there's a lot of um there's a lot of like opportunities the world kind of wants you to volunteer. You know, mm-hmm. there's there's all of these things that if you reach out to people and you're like, Hey, I don't have any connections, but I'm, I'm interested in volunteering. There are types of organizations that do interesting things that are open to that. You know, I, I kind of, maybe it's terrible, but whenever my friends, especially my friends who are in their twenties or something who who don't really feel kind of lost and without direction for a while, I'm like, yeah, go sit in a tree, like go mm-hmm. join direct action environmentalist groups that are desperate for people to come live their lives in this like self-sustaining community that is incredibly traumatic and hard to do. And I don't necessarily recommend this to everybody, but you know, it, it is a thing that you can do is that you can go participate in, in different movements. Some of which do want strangers, you know, some of which don't right? Um You can't show up to everything and be like, why aren't you including me? You're a bunch of assholes.
4: Yeah. And um, I don't know. So when, it, when it comes to actually like, Trying to start something, um, like 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 going out and accepting. Okay, there's not. Maybe I can't. I can't leave my family behind and go do a tree sit. But I would like to, uh, you know, start uh, a community engaging in something direct. Uh, Maybe that's not illegal direct action. Maybe it is. Mm -hmm. That's none of my business. Um, How do you recommend people just kind of start organizations? Find people. Avoid pitfalls like. You know, mm-hmm. if you've got to make your own mutual aid group because there's not one in your town and you you want to I mean, people have expressed a desire to to understand how to do that. So I'm I'm, you know, I've never I'm not an organizer. Uh, I'm barely a journalist. Uh, I am curious for your thoughts on that.
6: <laughs> well, OK, so, so my own caveat is I'm no longer an organizer. I, I spent much mm-hmm. of my 20s uh, being part of organizations. And then I finally um, realized that I can just kind of do whatever I want and then figure out how to plug that into other people's things. But I will mm-hmm. say the the main way I've heard this expressed and I I believe in is that we should do, if you want to start getting involved, is you think about what you're good at and or you think about what you want to be good at. And then you think about the problems that you're facing and then you think about how to apply what you're good at to the, the problems that you're facing. So if you're sitting there and you're like, well, I'm a, I'm a really good illustrator, right? I'm, I'm not. I'm a terrible illustrator. But let's say you're a good illustrator and then you you could basically reach out to organizations that maybe aren't even close and be like, Hey, I'm an illustrator. Is there anything I can do for you all? Um, but if what you want to do is start an organization locally, it's okay to start small and build up. It's okay to, you know, it's kind of a, if you build it, they will come kind of thing in general. Like if you start, if you figure out what you need to do, you know, we want to distribute supplies, right. Then you just do it. Like you just, um, even if you start by yourself or ideally you kind of start with yourself and, and a couple friends that you drag into it and then you, you see what gets inertia, like rather than like forcing, rather than starting off, don't start off by writing your bylaws. Um, you know, maybe start with an idea of like, if you have a cool name that you want to use, like sometimes that's great to like start with like a hook and it's like starting a band or something, you know, you start with like the thing that brings everyone together, which is sometimes a, a clever name, but, but mostly you just start by doing it and, um, you know one of the one of the ways that's longest standing that people can get involved with locally or start locally and there's a lot of resources about how to do it is uh, is food not bombs food not bombs is a, a mutual aid project that's existed and I wish I knew off the top of my head since when I want to mm-hmm. say the late 70s but I really couldn't tell you and it's just food it's just organizing food to give to people in public and it's actually wild how illegal it is in some places like people get arrested for food not bombs all the time yeah. in florida and a couple other places but
4: yeah, we talked about them in the first part of the season because there have been a, a couple of – points. I don't think nationally the FBI has mm-hmm. talked about them as a terror threat. But like in the Austin field office and I think one or two yeah. other places, they've been like discussed as a terrorist threat for yeah. handing out food.
6: I've had like helicopters flying overhead and like rioters yeah. around the corner and stuff for, for handing out food with food not bombs. Yeah, it's uh, – a mm-hmm. they missed the second half of the name, I guess. I don't, I don't know.
4: I don't um, know. I think maybe if we were to create bombs, not food, we, we might not get as much – police attention but Uh, that's that's just a theory
6: yeah Mm -hmm. well what everyone says is that we need food and no one says this no one would ever say this no one would ever believe Mm -hmm. this but we need food and bombs um you know (laughs) food and bombs (laughs) yeah Um, bombs for
4: some food for others we don't judge we provide explosives and we provide food
6: yeah (laughs) okay so if you can i think if you can you start by working you figure out what you're good at you find a group of people that are interested in accomplishing the same thing, who maybe have similar skill sets or different skill sets. Mm -hmm. And you figure out what you can do and you start doing it. And you organize calling people and being like, hey, will you donate to us? Or getting all your friends together to give you stuff to to redistribute or whatever, right? Putting out calls on social media for things to redistribute. You know, most structures start grassroots. And most of the time they kind of tend to do best when they're grassroots instead of becoming a little more codified. So if, if possible, do that. But if you're just you, um, sometimes tying into existing organizations is a thing worth doing. And if there's nothing locally, you can look at things a little further away, or you can look at things that are on maybe on a national level. But there's a lot of dangers in joining existing organizations and structures. And uh, I guess I I would say there's like three types of danger. And one is that you talk about all the time. And thanks for bringing into the leftist vocabulary the word grifter. I never heard anyone use the word grifter until... (laughs) Your podcasts. Oh. It's the um,
4: most important word in the American English, for sure. We live in a fucking grifter republic. It's incredible. And okay, we so always we need, have. This isn't yeah. new. Yeah.
6: But we need more words because we also need the word for people who are looking for useful idiots. Um, yeah. And there's a lot of social movements. And not to be like, I, I I support the left. I think that what we're attempting to do is very worthwhile. And I like us more than the other side by a fair amount. Mm-hmm. But there's a lot of things that there's a lot of problems. Uh, with the left and one of them is that people are looking either to just have you as a body with no decision-making power and no autonomy, mm-hmm. which doesn't actually build a better world because you're just yep stop being a cog in their machine and become a cog in our machine. Right. And then there's also people who are kind of um, looking for useful idiots, cannon fodder, like people to hang around while they, while they do stuff or, or mm-hmm. You know, and I don't want to go too hard. Bodies
4: to stand out in front of cop shops sometimes. Yeah, Yeah,
6: Yeah, and even, like, you know, even, like, movements that I really care about that might do a lot of, like, nonviolent civil disobedience, although I don't, Mm -hmm. I'm not particularly, I'm not a pacifist personally, but, you know, it's a very useful strategy, nonviolent civil disobedience. Mm -hmm. But sometimes they're like, oh, you're young and new, lock yourself to this thing, get arrested. And I would definitely say to people, don't get arrested on purpose at your first actions like don't yeah. be anyone else's cannon fodder until you feel like you are part of the decision making and part of like like you really matter and like then then don't um do dangerous things for other people's projects. Yeah.
4: Like the the shit that states do that's so messed up is is turn human bodies into resources that then get sacrificed for unclear ends. Yeah. Um and unless you feel like you have some sort of like, there are times where being arrested is necessary and helpful, totally. but unless unless you feel you fully understand not just why you're doing it, but also that, like, you, you, you're not being told to do it. You have autonomy, and, like, I'm going to do this thing that I know will end in my arrest because I, like, I don't know. That's probably, yeah. like, I think most people in that position know this, but I, I definitely have encountered some uncomfortable situations in the past i'm sure similar to ones you have where it did seem like people were kind of being pushed to take that risk mm-hmm. for reasons they didn't fully understand or in a situation they didn't fully grok you know
6: yeah which which gets at one of the things that when i talk about how i think this is the biggest problem we've not not the cannon fodder issue but the getting people involved is the biggest issue I think we currently face because there's so many yeah. people who want to be involved right now because the world is even worse than usual. And yeah. um, and it's hitting groups of people who haven't been hit by it before. And people are often also looking for a sense of community. And there's a thing that people, we don't talk about enough when people are getting involved. There's two different reasons people get involved and both are entirely valid. And one is to fix things. And another is to find, to break out of the isolation that they live in, in their daily lives. Um, And we need to be aware of that when we talk about how to onboard people. And we need to be aware about that. If you are getting involved, you should think about your own desires. Are you looking for community? And if so, you can find it within radical action, right? Um, But if you are doing that, then you especially need to be on guard against peer pressure because it's a really easy way to feel like you're involved with things is to go hang out with people who are all doing a really scary thing. And, Mm -hmm. and that's beautiful. And I absolutely did that. When I, when I first got involved in anarchism, I, I, and politics in general, I, I I joined in headfirst and uh, you know, spent a night in jail within the first couple months. And I don't have any particular regrets about that. And I found community in a way that I had never had in my life because of how isolated our society is. But that's not the only reason to to go do these things. Yeah,
4: and that is. I mean, I think a lot of people experienced that last year during the George Floyd protests. Mm-hmm. Is the kind of. I mean, it, it's a thing we've talked about on in the first season of It Could Happen Here that times like that, the this uh, war does this too, can actually provide meaning that that people have lacked, and a lot of it is that community, that like community of sufferers, the trauma bonding. Mm-hmm. Um, that feels like the most important thing you because maybe it is the most important thing you've ever done. I think in a lot of cases it is, yeah. Um, but that's also mind altering, and it, um, it 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 can lead to situations that are not entirely dissimilar to cults. Um, yeah. I'm not saying that they are cults because cults are number one. With a cult, there's generally going to be like a leader and a and such. But like there are things that happen that that draw people into cults that are just human things. There are aspects in some cases, as I've said before, of like a good party um but there are mm-hmm. cult-like aspects to the kind of groups that form in these traumatic situations that can lead people to start making really poor decisions um yeah. and and so you have to really you always have to be kind of analyzing not just what you're doing but what's going on in your own head and the head of the people heads of the people around you um that's that's just always important but i think particularly when you're when you're trying to do something new and different in a lot of ways, bigger than, than anything you've done before. I don't know. Do you have any specific advice for like kind of avoiding the cults of personality that sometimes form in, in new organizations?
6: Yeah. So you have both informal and formal structures can both cause Mm -hmm. problems with cult of personality. There are these brilliant essays that I haven't read in like 20 years that come from the feminist movement and one of them is called The Tyranny of structurelessness. And as best as I remember it, these are very short essays. As best I remember it, The Tyranny of structurelessness says, if you don't have a formal structure in your organization, you're going to have this informal leader who basically tells yep. everyone what to do. And yep. that's a problem. And, and is a very important uh, piece. And I believe it comes from a Marxist feminist perspective, but I'm not 100% certain. And then there was an anarchist feminist response around the same time, maybe, I'm not sure, called The Tyranny of Tyranny, that was like, yes, that's true. And also when you have a formal structure and put someone in charge, they're in charge. And that has other problems too. Mm-hmm. And I think that it just, we, we have to be aware of both of these things that, um, you know, the the fact that most movements are very decentralized and grassroots has, has huge advantages, right? But it does have problems of causing informal cults of personality. Um, uh, <laughs> podcasting is a big part of this problem. Mm-hmm. Um And actually, I really appreciate that you're not an organizer, like, frankly, and it's part of why I'm not an organizer on some level is because um, when people read the books that someone writes or listen to someone's voice all the time, it it is very influential, right? Yep. And being aware of that and therefore not exerting that power uh, is a very good thing. Um, And... But there's, okay, so the other thing, like, when I worry about, like, people getting involved with, like, don't get peer pressured into stuff when you first join, there's also this thing that is, um, needs to be talked about, and maybe you all have talked about this some previously, but uh, entrapment. Entrapment is a huge problem. And specifically, the feds tend to look for young idealist activists who can be peer pressured into actions that they may or may not have otherwise ideologically agreed with, like, Hey, let's go blow up a bridge or let's go blow yep. up a dam. And and this doesn't just happen to the left, it happens
4: um I mean. Oh yeah, it's, it's, it's all around. Um yeah. for sure. Like there's that case of the guys who were trying to kidnap the governor of a uh, was it Michigan? A lot of that was informants who were there's a lot of yeah. there's you can debate heavily whether or not it 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 was entrapment. Um obviously what right. we what we might consider entrapment morally often isn't entrapment legally because the fbi does know where the lines are legally but that doesn't mean it isn't morally entrapment yeah
6: right and they they do that a lot and they usually succeed um well they may not usually succeed at the they usually succeed at the case and entrapment Mm -hmm. defenses are, are hard to succeed yes with and so really just like and thinking about I think developing your own moral compass and sticking to it is one of the single most important things that a new activist can, can do and not to be afraid of radical action necessarily like militant action, but, but be wary of it. Um, but then again, I mean, in terms of like being wary of, of what the other thing to avoid doing is like accusing each other, like fed jacketing, like being like, Oh, well that person's doing the same thing. A fed might do like wink, wink, you know? Um, (laughs) it's a really complicated and annoying game to play. And if you're just getting involved, you're going to have to learn how to get it, play this game of not fed jacketing and also not, um, falling into stuff. And it's annoying because you probably have to kind of learn some of the stuff, even if all you want to do is give away blankets. You know, if you want to tie what you're doing to a larger ideological structure, then it's going to come up that you need to be aware of how, Repression applies to that larger ideological structure.
5: Yeah, like all, all this is very useful, specifically if you're trying to find something kind of pre existing um, or, you know, looking, you know, or, you know, st- starting something in a bigger city where you have like connections can be made to other existing organizations.
7: Mm-hmm.
5: And I'm trying to think, you know, there's a lot of people who live in more like rural areas not much of like a liberal or like you know especially leftist kind of subculture how would how would you recommend people who live in those kind of scenarios try to start building this community when say like they only have like a few friends um what what steps do you think people can take if they have more you know a secluded
6: setup so it it is harder and I live in a, a red area close to a blue area, right? And I do most of my organizing and as much as I do organizing within the the nearby small hippie city. Uh, even though theoretically, the thing that I care the most about is connections to my immediate neighbors, right? Um, that is harder. And it is harder for a lot of different reasons, especially if you have um, <coughs> cultural differences between you and the people that you're around, right? Like um, I'm a trans woman and... I live around a lot of like farms and stuff. Right. And, and previously this wasn't a problem before Trump. This was kind of just wasn't a problem after Trump. Now, all of a sudden the fact that I'm trans is like an attack against people in a way that it never used to be. And, and so now they, they all have an opinion about the fact that I'm wearing a dress, but still at the end of the day, I would say that most of the people that I'm around are actually totally chill. Like there's a, a vocal minority of really horrid people. Right. Um, but even the people who might be and um, might have even like voted for Trump or whatever um, are not necessarily, at least along my own identity lines, I'm also white, are not necessarily going to give me shit. And, you know, I can go talk to them and address. and they might be sort of confused and they might not be. But if you have more culturally in common with the people around you, then there is a lot of room that you can start working on from there. And this actually ties into something that I think applies to people across the board. Which is we have this, especially new activists, but also including people who've been in it for a long time, have this like real arrogance about the fact that we're like, right. And when you want to change the world, you need a certain amount of arrogance. You need a certain amount of like, I I mean, I I literally believe we need to not have a government or capitalism. And these are very major changes to our existing structure. There's a a huge amount of arrogance to that. But, Although
4: not having a government is slightly less of a major change right. now than it was a couple years ago. <laughs> That's
6: true, and also, <laughs> uh, like something like sometimes actually, it's funny. I used to have it more in common with these neighbors, but then all the libertarians went, "God damn authoritarian!" Yeah, Trump.
4: that bummed mm. the fuck out of me.
6: Yeah,
4: um, there's there's some good ones still. There's like again, there's the there's the pl- there's the taking your private plane into a disaster area yeah. libertarians, and God bless yeah.
6: them. <laughs> totally. And, yeah. you know, they're like, they just don't want their, you know, it's like my, my dad is sort of on the libertarian side of things and mm-hmm. keeps $20 bills in the visor of his truck to give to people flying signs. And he just doesn't want mm-hmm. the government redistributing his money. He doesn't mind redistributing yeah. his money. You yeah. know, yeah. And I'm like, all right, I don't have any real objection to that. Um, he's also no longer, anyway, if you come at people with this attitude of like, I'm right and you're wrong the kind of people that you can get to join your side by saying I'm right and you're wrong are not the people you want. You, you want people who, who challenge authority, including the authority of people who claim there shouldn't be authority. Mm-hmm. And and so just actually listening to people and like hearing people out and um, when possible avoiding drawing lines between people is one of the main ways to connect with people across either cultural divides or especially political divides And this, this can't always happen, right? Like Mm -hmm. I walk down the street in a dress and someone like calls me a bad word. Like, I'm not going to be like, I understand why you think to call me that. And I understand how like me dressed this way kind of challenges your sense of masculinity that you've been brought up into as the only way that you can hold yourself strong in a very hard world. No, I don't do that. I, um, scream, fuck you and chase them. Um, I would never chase anyone with a knife. I think that's not legal. So I wouldn't do that, but, um, it, you know, mm, that, that might work. And, you know, like, fuck those people. I, I don't care what they have to say. No, of course not. And it, when I, I think one,
4: one of the, the things that, uh, I don't know, Twitter brain has done is that like when you, when you talk about reaching out and talking to people who, you know, don't agree with you, aren't, aren't on your side ideologically, there's folks who will kind of assume like, oh, so you're saying I should like try to be friendly with people who want to murder me? Like, no, I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that yeah. like as a trans person or a black person you should go talk to um, a, a militant anti-LGBT activist or a fucking Klansman or something. I'm saying that like that's not within the broad. I, I'm saying what, what what you need to recognize, but I, what I think is important to recognize, especially if you're when we talk about like post you know collapse or whatever, is that. Within broad political tendencies, so I'm not talking about like fascist or whatever, mm-hmm. but I'm talking about like liberal, conservative, progressive, very broad political tendencies, you have roughly the same percentage of people who are shit. So in an anarchist mm-hmm. group, the amount of people who are shitty is going to be similar to the amount of the general population that are shitty. And it's the yep. same with every political tendency. But the corollary to that is, again, within broad tendencies, you'll find roughly the same amount of people who are basically rad, and maybe yeah, there's some they uh, have, their brain got poisoned with disinfo, and they believe some stupid shit, uh, and they vote like an asshole. But you know, they'll stop their car if they see someone in an accident, and they keep a fucking medical kit in their bag. And you know, yeah. they that it's the it's the it's the shit that you know. I, I talk a lot about this the stabbing on the Portland MAX train. Well, the two people who who died confronting that uh, asshole. Um, we're a, a Republican retired veteran and a far left uh, social justice activist, and they both, yeah. you know, put their bodies on the line. So I, I think that, like, when we talk about like being willing to kind of talk with people who are who are not on the same ideological boat as you, that's that's what I mean. Not you should make nice with the people who want to exterminate you. Like fuck those people. Yeah, because. The thing
6: you're looking for, the thing I'm looking for is the Republican who's going to hopefully instead of dying alongside me, successfully Mm -hmm. defeat the, you know, actual far right person. But yeah, yeah, no, totally. And and I think that that actually is part of the it's not always the answer for every person who's isolated. Right. Everyone who's socially isolated. But it is part of it. If you're trying to organize with people where you say you're the only leftist or the only anarchist in your area then maybe you don't start, and this is actually funny, I'm very into being very public about my political ideology so that people know what biases I'm coming into things with, but but maybe you don't start your rural mutual aid project calling it the rural mutual aid project, or maybe you do, or maybe you you just start doing it and you find people who are willing to have the same goals and means as you, and and I, I think you can do alongside of that, you can also just be really public about what you believe. I mean, you know, um, again, as an anarchist, I end up working with like, church groups and things that i i don't necessarily agree with on a lot of i a lot of things but they're not mad when i'm like oh i'm an anarchist they're just like huh okay i'm a church person or what you know mm-hmm. and like okay i'm not i don't expect different of them and they don't expect different of me and we we know what we have in common and what we don't to a certain degree and then we work on what we have in common and so airing and so this is both true if you're within the movement and you're hoping to try and solve this problem for other people, but I also think it's going to be true for people who are trying to uh, build things in areas where they don't have, where they don't feel like they're part of something larger, is erring on the side of inclusion versus exclusion. And not and like you're talking about, it's about erring on the side of, not always include everyone. Not always committing to a hard and fast rule. Yeah. Yeah. yeah totally.
4: Yeah. Be be open to the fact that people can surprise you in ways that aren't yeah. terrifying.
6: <laughs> yeah. Also, because you get terrified enough by enough like people who you think are on your side that you're like, oh, wait, yeah. I'm sad you all don't do the um, the ad pivots in this show because oh I had yeah one. no you I can do oh, we, we'll do, do Margaret, it we can do it we can, we we can edit can we it can in. edit we can yeah do we can this. cut it in during one of the long awkward pauses go for okay. it okay
4: and so, we'll keep all this up to it in but we'll actually <laughs> cut the actual <laughs> ad yeah, yeah, pivots so you'll hear great. it it's like Finnegan's Wake you're gonna hear it out of order
6: okay. And I I hopefully you all be able to figure out the second half of it, but the first the first half is anyone who claims to have all the answers is selling you something. Oh, uh huh,
5: yeah.
4: Oh, oh, you know who else is selling you something?
6: Is it the ads, Geico services?
5: Go listen to the Geico, Geico,
4: or or Jesus. We've had some bad ones lately. Um, (laughs) There's that SOS Cuba show that sounds were rough uh (laughs) there was that one that was just like god it was just like they're selling the concept of jesus we are sponsored by god
6: (laughs) i think i've gotten like walmart and mcdonald's on your show before well remember
4: that's the people's food
6: oh yeah organize
5: actually try to organize around the walmart that could be very useful so anyway here's ads if someone is trying to start something new inside mm-hmm. one of these more secluded areas and like they have decided like, yeah, I I'm, I'm willing to do something. I'm willing to actually just like start it. How, how would you recommend they try to figure out what some of the like biggest needs of the community are that they can actually tackle? Like how how does someone mm-hmm. find out what to do with their mutual aid? Because they can like commit to like, yeah, I can do something around supplies, something around this, you know, whatever. But like, how does one try to actually gauge what is important to
6: try to tackle? I guess it depends on whether you feel like you're totally like if in in my head, if I'm totally inside a, not necessarily a community, but an area, right. I probably kind of know because I'm also experiencing whatever the thing is. But if I'm, if I'm a little bit detached from it, then I do need to like do kind of, you know, the sort of traditional me- method is I think it's called listening projects. I've never actually personally done a listening project. Um, I've been around many people who do, where you basically like, I mean sometimes you go door to door and you're like hey what's up like what do you need like what's going on you know um but like say for example in the area that I live there is a um a rural organizing pro- it's not the actual rural organizing project which is a specific structure but there is a a rural mutual aid group in the the largely red area that I live in uh, that's run by by leftists and they um I think that largely they they did a lot of like firewood delivery for example because a lot of the areas around here are, are heated by wood stoves and you have a lot of poverty in rural areas. And of course, poverty looks very different in rural areas versus urban areas. And, you know, one of the advantages of being rural poor, there's many disadvantages like lack of access to certain types of services. Right. Um, but one of the, the sometimes advantages of, of rural poverty as, as I understand it, I'm not specifically an expert um, is you have space, right? You just don't have stuff or money. And so you can have stuff if people give you stuff. So you can like store your firewood. And so, and then also because it's this very specific, tangible thing, people can get really excited about like, oh, I can chop firewood Mm -hmm. or maybe even I can't chop firewood because my legs busted because I work in the paper mill or whatever. But I can, but I got a trailer on my truck, you know, Um, and I can haul that. And people get really excited when there's like things that they specifically are good at, especially things that like kind of have alienated them from other people that they're, that they're good at that they can then uh, participate in. And so, which is not totally answer your question, but I, w- I would say if anyone specifically is in a rural situation, is looking to start a mutual aid group, look at the rural organizing project. Yes. I, I don't believe that they specifically do rural um, mutual aid organizing, but they talk a lot about what it means to be an organizer within areas that are largely controlled by the far right, but are not, it's not like the people are all far right. They're just controlled by the far right, you know?
5: Yeah the yeah. people actually there once you talk to them might actually be a lot more reasonable than like the media influencers who are part of this you know yeah. same thing
4: yeah and it is it is one of those things this is a topic we're drifting to but it's one we drift to regularly on this show we're like when i talk with conservatives it's it's not uncommon that i can without especially if i don't start by mentioning anarchy i can get them to agree to a lot of the things I believe, which is like, yeah, maybe people don't need to be governed. Maybe that like doesn't work out good. Maybe uh, politicians are corrupt and should have less power. And like, that doesn't mean that you're gonna you're gonna get them on the barricades with you. Because um, mm-hmm. any productive kind of relationship starts from like a, a base of shared uh, interests. And it, it's not a useless endeavor to engage in kind of trying to subtly you know if you if you feel out people around you who are ideologically not particularly similar to you but also decent people um you can kind of try and work in some 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 thing you've, not ju- not just some common ground but you can try and and get them to see that they agree with you one more than they think um and that yeah. that has a, an 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 effect of changing the way people think about the world it really does
6: yeah and you but you also have to go into it open to yes Maybe maybe it's not going to change your opinion about the way the economy should be structured or the way that sure. power works, right? But, you know, you, you definitely have to go into it with a, I can now understand why you drive a big pickup truck that burns a lot of gas or yeah. whatever whatever thing you might be coming into it thinking. Yeah, or
4: at least it, it might help you understand why they believe or do certain things outside of, you know, uh, Dave Rubin broke their brain because they got on YouTube at the wrong time. I don't know. Margaret, did you have anything else you wanted to really get into?
6: I guess to one of the other questions that you all brought up was about preparedness, like maybe kind of almost in the inverse situation. Yeah. Where let's say that you live in a small apartment and you want to be prepared. And in which case, maybe you have better access to community. Maybe you don't, right? A lot of people who live in the city are just as isolated socially as people yeah. who live elsewhere. But at least you kind of have like, there's a little bit more easy access to ways to break out of certain types of isolation if you put work into it, because there's more likely to be groups around that are that are public that you can go interface with. Um, but in terms of like actual preparedness, you have the inverse problem, right, of if you live rural, you might have room to store beans and rice, and if you live in the city, you might not, right? Um, but I, I will say it's the other thing that I find people, the two things that people talk to me about, I think you all run into also is that people are either, I don't have any community or I don't have any money in sp- space. Right? Yeah. And so if you don't have any money in space, I mean, I mean, in some ways it's like, well, maybe your focus isn't like stockpiling stuff. Stockpiling stuff is like the single most overrated part of individual or community preparedness. Um, I mean, I do it, <laughs> but you know, that's cause I, um, my brain works that way. Um, but also, the level of like stuff that you might be looking for might be a lot less than like, like, you know, it's like prepper media is filled with like, here's how to build a bunker under your pool. And I'm like, what? Like, yeah. There's, there's so many levels. I mean, don't get so me wrong. Many,
5: so many other things that you should be doing before you go to that stage.
6: Yeah. 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 I mean like, don't get me wrong. If I had a pool, I'd be stoked. And if I had Absolutely. a bunker under it, I'd be even more stoked. I'd be but, so happy. Yeah. <laughs> But, but you know what? It's like, it's the first five gallon bucket of like dried food you store is far and away more important than the 10th, right? Yes. And like, so just having a five gallon jerry can full of water so that you're like, you know what? If the water turns off or we have a boil advisory, which happens all the time, yeah, I, I'm good for mm-hmm. a couple days, right? Because most of the time people think about preparedness as like, I'm preparing for the end times and usually what it is is the end times are real slow and chunky and uh, crumbly yeah. so that's the word. Um yeah. and uh, so you're just really looking to like smooth out interruptions and a lot of that can be done uh, very cheaply. And honestly when when you start storing your fifth 5 gallon jerry can of water you're not storing it for you anymore. You're storing nope. it for your neighbor. Yep.
4: Yeah, right. and that's good, but not. Yeah, exactly. Y- y- not the first step, you know. Yeah, it's, right. um,
5: it's, it's better to prepare for if you have like a week's worth of power outages or a week's worth of the water yeah. not working, right? And yeah. those are more incremental steps because we're not just going to drop off and have no water forever starting in a month, right? Probably not. But we I could mean, very likely you know. have. I mean, there's, <laughs> there's going to be there's enough remaining systems that they that they want yeah. to fix it. You know, it's more likely that some, some disaster is going to happen. and Then we're going to have, you know, a week worth of stuff gone, you know, and that's the thing that's actually more, more reasonable to to prep for. Yeah,
4: yeah that makes sense. Um, well, Margaret, where can, where can the good people and hopefully not the bad people, but statistically some of them will suck, find you?
6: Um, the good people can find me on, I have a podcast called Live Like the World is Dying which they can listen to you on if they would like. And it's about individual and community preparedness. I also am on Twitter way too much at Magpie Killjoy, Instagram at Margaret Killjoy. My website's birdsbeforethestorm.net or margaretkilljoy.com. And that has like a list of all the books that I have out. And I have a new book, an old book being reissued that is coming out in November from AK press the book is called a country of ghosts and it's an anarchist utopian book because I was sick of people being like, but how would an anarchist society work? And I was like, you know what? I wrote a book.
4: Damn straight.
6: Book. Um, it also has a plot, so it's not. Yeah. Just boring. Ooh,
4: oh, wow. Yeah. Fancy. Getting kind of bougie with your, I we know. do lots.
6: <laughs> if you write a plot, you get the wall. No plots <laughs> allowed. <laughs> Only post structural literature. Well, okay, so this has actually happened to anarchist fiction writers before. <laughs> um, oh, I love anarchists so
5: much.
6: Dumbudzo D- oh, Marichera D- 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 was this anarchist uh, fiction writer. Um, oh, I can't remember where from. I'm gonna. This is terribly embarrassing. But it, he he moved to England um, from a colonized African country. Um, yeah, th- what did Rhodesia become? This is the most embarrassing. thing Oh, it remember. became
4: a Zimbabwe, right?
6: Okay, yeah. So yeah. So he was from there, and then everyone. And he, he moved to to London until he realized that they're all a bunch of racists and he would like break yeah. shit at award ceremonies and then go back home. But <laughs> yeah. um and he was a squatter for a while in the eighties. But he wasn't writing in the proper uh post colonial like Marxist realist tradition <laughs> because instead he was writing postmodern fiction, which is yeah. decadent and terrible. Yeah. And so he just like was like, I don't care. And so he's great. <laughs> that is that is um, lovely. So ah, anyway, yes. I'd love to see it uh mm-hmm. that,
5: that, that's the episode <laughs> that's
4: the episode <laughs> go out and
5: write postmodern destructural... oh, I was gonna say
4: jump on a train but oh that that's too yeah probably also a bad Same idea thing. i talked to somebody who lost their legs doing that once anyway episode's over <laughs>
2: Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome. This is
5: It Could Happen Here Daily. Uh, This week, we are focusing on different ways to actually start doing things. You know, we've talked a lot about ideas and we like, you know, made some broad recommendations um, and, you know, had people on to give specific insights into, you know, different things. But we're trying to focus this week and then, you know, more in the future is like, if you're brand new to this sort of thing, how to actually start doing stuff. And one of the things we talk about a lot is a lot of almost everyone we've interviewed has mentioned this at some point, that trying to get more active in the things you're consuming and the the things that you're eating, and one of the ways to do that is by just literally growing your own food. Mm-hmm. I when when I was growing up, I mean, I my my grandparents op- operate, I mean, like they used to operate like 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 a large large farm. Now they operate kind of like a farm that just like feeds them. So whenever I'm at my grandparents uh, in Canada, usually we you know we just eat all the food they grow, whether that be like produce. Um, they, they also do like their own hunting they make their own sausage like you know they they, they preserve meats so like I've, I kind of grew up around this type of thing because just how self-reliant some of my family is but not everyone may have this kind of background and so you know this idea of growing your own food can feel maybe a little bit daunting um and to help us talk about food and then eventually soil and other kind of things I have uh Invited a guest on from a uh, another kind of podcast in this in, that operates in the same rough rough framework, I would say probably sure. of how to how to kind of slowly <laughs> improve improve the world. Um, uh, do, do we want to explain uh, who you are and what your what your what your project is? Sure. So my
8: name is Andy. I'm the host of the Poor Pearls Almanac. We're a podcast that's focused on thinking about after collapse how do we, things like climate change and collapse impact things like food systems and what can we do today to prepare for what's coming in the future?
5: Yeah. Uh, I feel like it's not, it's not, it's not a coincidence that all of these different kind of projects are getting more popular around the same time because we're looking at the world and being like, huh, this doesn't seem very sustainable. <laughs> no. So we better, we better start figuring out what to do with. uh, all these systems kind of slowly, you know, start losing parts. I want to talk about kind of food today. I, I want, to, want to maybe branch off into like a few different directions. Branch, uh, that's a pan, plant, uh. plant pun. Um, <laughs> want to branch off into a few different directions, both like, you know, what do you do if you have like your own house and yard, or maybe you're like more rural, you have lots of space. And then also like kind of the inverse of like, let's say you lived in like, I don't know, a cramped city apartment, different things that you can do. Let's probably start with like the rule just to like give a you know a more like base background on you sure. know it, it, you have more of like a standard setup for what what you're able to do if someone's never grown anything before they've never like maybe they've had like one house plant but like they've never grown anything what what do you think is the best first like preparation steps before you actually you know go and start buying seeds and stuff
8: sure so when it comes to growing food it's really not that complicated chances are if you have a front yard, we're talking about someplace that's pretty rural, assuming the climate isn't someplace super dry, you're generally going to be thinking about growing food someplace where grass probably already grows. So if grass is already growing there, you know, things can grow there. And really, that, that's as simple as it can be. It can be more complicated. We can start talking about things like soil pH and nutrients and all of these other things. But really, when it comes down to it, if you put a seed in the ground and the temperature's not too warm or cold, and it gets rain but not too much rain, the plant's going to grow. And if you've got some, say, a couple acres and you want to cut out a little section of it to grow some food, uh, that that's as simple as it really can be. And you can go to whatever store and buy seeds. So like that that's a good place to start. And obviously, depending on where you live, you want to think about things like lead in the in the uh, soil. If you live someplace mm. near an old house, or maybe mm-hmm. if you're near someplace where there was manufacturing. And one of the things to keep in mind is that a lot of older settlements, even if there isn't a factory there now, uh, it's very possible there was a factory 50, 100 years ago. It's been demoed and you never even knew it was there. So it's really important if you do live in some place that has that manufacturing background or an old house to really check for things like lead in the soil, because that can be really dangerous.
9: And there's like yeah a very accessible like soil testing kits available at Absolutely. stores and online. Okay.
8: Yeah, it's like yeah, I think fifteen dollars you can have a soil sample taken and yeah. you can find out everything that's in it.
9: You can also find out like the pH and you know if it's too acidic and things like that. So yeah,
5: you, you figure out you wanna you you wanna start growing stuff. You have you have some space, whether it be like a front yard or maybe like, like even like an open field if you're lucky. Um, what kind of what kind of stuff do you think you know, should I just jump in and buy any kind of seed that looks fun? Or should I like start with specific things? I don't know. Is like, if I really like potatoes, should I just go to potatoes? If I really like cauliflower, should I just do cauliflower? What's kind of the, if, if, if I'm brand new, what's the different things that would be worth first trying out? So generally speaking, you really want to think about what your climate is.
8: And I think that's one of the things that gets missed a lot of times is you want to grow things. So like I live in New England. Growing, say, watermelon is really a a challenge in a lot of ways, because you have to think about the length of my season versus the length it takes for a watermelon to be a a full-sized fruit for you to eat. So depending on where you live, the one thing you need to keep in mind is what that length of your season is. Now, to get back to the main subject of the podcast, talking about things like climate change and collapse, that season is changing rapidly. Right now, we're adding days, so the seasons are are getting longer. But also, we're having weird cold snaps later and later into spring. So what might have been a traditional season no longer really applies anymore. So if you're thinking about this is your first year, you don't want to grow anything that might be right at the cusp of um, being in your season, or you don't want to start a plant inside and then have to move it outside, and you have to know whether or not it has a tap root and all these other things to make sure that you don't damage the plant, then you definitely want to grow something with a shorter season. Things like um, cold weather plants, lettuces, uh, broccolis, cauliflowers, things like that will generally do pretty good in short seasons, but they don't really do well in really warm climates. So if you're in, say, Florida, it's going to be really difficult. Um, but that that's kind of how you want to start thinking about those processes, learning what the cold season plants are, what the warm season plants are, where you fit in in terms of the zone that you live within. And again, starting to think about Okay, the last couple of years. When did we get the last frost? Because it's not what it might say ten years ago is year, your average last frost. Those days totally. are pretty
5: much gone. I know here in Portland, we're currently growing a lot of potatoes, and that's been that's been kind of our our, our big haul. Also, uh, tomatoes did very good this year, particularly because of our big heat domes. They got there we got know. the pot- tomatoes did so much better than what they what they usually do. We've like canned so many tomatoes. Uh, just because we just we have so many more than what we're used to. Uh, but I do find that interesting, being like, you know, climate change, obviously being generally a net bad, but, you know, in some cases for growing, it's going to make certain crops e- easier to grow, but, you know, other crops will be harder to grow. That's something I, I wanted to talk more about in the first five heavily scripted, it could happen here, season two episodes, It's like particularly how, different growing regions are going to shift up and how like you know canada for instance is going to have a lot more agriculture in the next 20 30 50 years just because so many so many climates are slowly inching upwards but you know even in places like georgia and other places where different if we know specific plants are growing all that stuff's going to be changing obviously this is affecting coffee and how we're getting less and less space and land that's actually able to grow coffee because basically Plant, uh, you know, growers have to move their plants up a mountain every year in order to make the coffee actually work. Which is why yeah. we're just gonna we're just gonna run out of space. Um, so yeah, yeah that and is obviously the more n- negative sides of things.
9: And in like yeah, in California, up- lack of rainwater,
5: and just and just lack of rain.
8: Yeah, yeah absolutely, lack of rain. Yeah, absolutely. And that brings up a really important point that you know you're talking about moving the coffee trees further and further up a mountain as the the areas that are considered prime agricultural areas moves north for us you have to think about the infrastructural challenges that brings so it's not just you're going to grow the crops in one place but the infrastructure the trains all these different things don't exist in the places where you'll be able to grow those foods
5: so speaking of something you know around that rough kind of idea is like if someone's never never done this before they're out to go get stuff where would you where would someone like that find seeds um let's say that they don't let's say they don't use the internet tons um whereabouts will you think they'll go and get cauliflower seeds or carrot seeds if they, if they want to start doing this stuff
8: yeah so there's a bunch of different growers that offer seeds and one of the things to keep in mind with annuals is that it does make sense if you can to buy them locally because what within a couple generations plants will start evolving towards local conditions it's It's really beneficial, especially with like I said, with climate change, to start thinking about how can we integrate our food systems into the ecological conditions where we live, and that ecology includes the climate so we we have to continuously more thoughtfully start thinking about these things and how we grow food and where those foods come from in order to really be able to deal with and mitigate the effects of climate change. So a great resource is Johnny's seed. They do a lot of oh, yeah. really good work and they they have good quality stuff. And uh, there's a bunch of seed companies out there that have done some really problematic stuff that I, I won't go into or talk about. But they're, these guys, as far as I'm aware, are pretty good. So I, I would definitely recommend them.
5: Awesome.
9: Yeah, their website is just uh, johnnyseeds.com just for everyone who's looking that up. And it's Johnny with a Y. Good for Johnny. With a Y.
5: With a Y, <laughs> yes. With a Y. Great. All right. Let's, now let's say someone lives in a downtown apartment in a metropolitan area. They don't have immediate access to, you know, tons of dirt or, you know, grass. But they want to start kind of growing some stuff. If, if you were in that position, what would you start doing?
9: And to that, I want to two-part that. That would be somebody with a balcony where they have access to like even like a little patio area. Yeah, and or those, And then without. Yeah.
8: Sure. So there's a bunch of different things you can do. Starting with, if you have a balcony, you can start thinking about getting pots, filling them up with soil, amending that soil as needed as you add plants. And again, the the general rule is to think about how big a plant gets and how big a plant gets is how big its root system is gonna get. I mean, that's not a hundred percent accurate by any means, but it's just a good rule of thumb to think about as you're doing something like this. And, you know, if you have a tiny pot, then something that gets big is not going to work might be better for a lettuce or whatever. And there's a bunch of different places you can look online for how to grow things on balconies and things like that. You can also, and this is really dependent on money is start thinking about things like grow lights, which really are not that complicated. Once you start learning a bit about them, hydroponics, which comes with their own challenges, because at the end of the day, while it's nice to be able to grow food in your house, you're still relying on extractive processes. So, you know, your nutrients are coming from fossil fuel, essentially. So that's just something to be aware of. It's probably still better than the alternative of buying food on the shelf. But it is something to be aware of in that process that it's not really a sustainable, quote unquote, practice. Got it.
9: And what are some of the go tos for a balcony garden that you would recommend for people that are just starting out?
8: Definitely those leafy greens are a good place to start they grow small, they have smaller root systems. Uh, most times things like lettuces don't need a ton of sun to grow super well. As long as they get a decent amount, they'll be fine. They're not like a tomato that's going to like be desperately looking for that that sun and that energy. Mm-hmm. So those smaller greens are generally a better option.
9: Great. Yeah, I was able to grow kale in like a pot this of uh, this winter and it was great.
8: Yeah, kale's a great one. Uh, here in New England, it's really nice because you can grow it under glass during the winter. So even if you yeah. get a, a cold spell, it'll stay just warm enough to make it pretty much throughout the winter.
9: That's awesome. All
5: right, now I have no balcony. I only have you know two small windows. You know, I have I have like a counter and stuff. You know, I can like can, I can set up stuff, but. I uh, I do not have tons of outdoor access, but I, I I would like to stop buying dill every time I go to the store because I use it in my homemade ranch dressing. Now, can I just buy those like pre pre potted stuff and just water them? Uh, or can I get like if 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 I like want to get more in depth? What are the you know some things that are beyond that, but not you know making this you know making this giant setup? So you
8: could be creative and do something that's less than. 100% legal. And there's this practice known as guerrilla gardening. Gorilla agriculture. I was, I was going it- to
5: mention guerrilla gorilla gardening soon. Yeah.
8: <laughs> sure. So this is like something that works really well. And there's a bunch of different ways you can do it. And it really depends on your local conditions and what can grow out in the wild and needs a lot of maintenance and what doesn't. And I I don't know the Pacific Northwest that well but it is warm enough that I think dill would probably do fine. And it is wet enough that dill would probably do fine. So you could just go anywhere where there's green space that nobody checks things and just drop some plants in. You could start seedlings in your house and bring them where you want to harvest it later. And if it's on your walk to work or where you get coffee or whatever, drop it in the ground, make sure the roots are, you know, not bound up and make sure it's got a nice water drench right when you put it in the ground. So it starts adjusting. And that's, you know, that that's the first step in something as simple as guerrilla agriculture.
5: One of the first things that we tried to do when I got kind of started in, you know, the, you know, Portland's kind of more lefty scene was, you know, ideas for, you know, building a community garden somewhere. Mm-hmm. And yeah, because there is just a lot of dirt, especially in like, Portland's specifically lucky just because we just have so much green space uh there's a lot of places to to start like guerrilla gardening to start doing your own little community garden do you yeah. do you have any uh, alleged experience in guerrilla gardening
8: yes so if you're on instagram i post a bit about some of the guerrilla gardening stuff that i do um i generally focus on uh guerrilla gardening not necessarily for my own consumption but more for ecological mitigation for damage from um clear cutting and things like that So I I go out and try to plant things that are native to regions and try to bring them back a little bit. So that's one of the challenges that we see here on the East Coast is not only are our cities not really designed with green space in mind and for like community gardens, I almost never recommend them just because in places like Boston, they're hard to get into and a lot of major cities like you can be on wait lists for years. So that's not really a a short term solution or a solution for a lot of people that are rather transient where you might move communities every three, four or five years. Um, So like guerrilla gardening works really great for those folks because you
5: can do it when you want and how you want.
9: Nothing says community like a wait list.
5: Right. (laughs) (laughs) No, but like in terms of community gardens, I think, you know, there's been a lot of people asking about how they get involved in mutual aid and stuff, especially if they don't have like friends or like, they don't have like many friends or connections to activism. I think one of the, best ways to start anything like that is just all you need is like yourself and maybe one or two other people that you know to just start a community garden somewhere and that's a very very nice on-ramp into like community organizing absolutely back in portland when i used to live um, in the southwest there was there's just whole like community plots that are like you know more like official but still pretty like decentralized that you could just basically go up to one of the vacant plots and just start planting food in this community setting. And, like, w- once a month, all of the different gardeners would, like, get together and talk about what they're growing and stuff. And they could, you know, could trade produce. Be like, I'm growing I'm growing pumpkins. You're growing butternut squash. I want one of your squash. I want one of your pumpkins, all right? You can, like, that kind of stuff. Um, Or, if you know, if you end up have, with having, like, a, a larger hole, you could just give it out to, to random people turns out people might like receiving fresh produce. Um, that could be a, another way of making friends and making connections. If you're kind of isolated in a city and you only have one or two other people, you can, yeah, start, start a new community garden somewhere in the city. It's like scope out a spot, start growing. Yeah. And, and then, and yeah, uh,
8: could, to speak to that, you know, one of the things is that if you act like you're official and you're supposed to be there and you know, you're supposed to be there People generally don't really question you, especially when it comes to plants. <laughs> like if I go to like a median and go plant some trees, like as long as I act like I know what I'm doing and like don't look like I'm trying to be sneaky, no one ever yeah. questions me. And that, that's the key thing is to really make it clear that like, you know, you're supposed to be there.
5: When, whenever I eventually I'll put together a, an episode on like urban stealth and stuff. And there's nothing more powerful than like a high vis vest just an incredibly powerful tool for making people glaze over you and think you're a professional. It's amazing. Yeah.
8: Or in this case, like when I'm doing what I do, you know, I'll borrow someone's old beat up pickup truck and throw a couple of big trees in the back. And like, you see that pulled over on the side of the road with its hazard lights on. Nobody's going to question that it's like a town or a city. And if somebody from the town shows up as I'm from the DPW or
5: whatever. Yeah. There's, it's incredibly, incredibly useful. Um, and yeah, but like, getting to know you know if you're like I, I don't know where to find a local you know i i i don't know how to like where i would pick a local community garden spot be like you should like get to know your local area it's another great way of figuring out how to start doing any mutual aid or anything it's like you need to know where you live and like what's what's around you who others who you know maybe on your search to find a community garden you might find one that already exists if you're unfamiliar with your you know with If if you're in a metropolitan area or if you're more out in the middle of nowhere, you may not know what's around you. And I mean, looking out to see what's actually in your community is one of the first big steps to have any kind of... And that plays out also in
8: ecology. So, you know, if you're in a city, most cities have public forest parks, whatever it might be. And part of not knowing what's around you or knowing rather what's around you is starting to identify the plants that are already around you. And while there's been a lot of action in terms of thinking about things like foraging, um, there's, there's a ton of opportunity for us to start looking at foods that we don't traditionally think of foods, but produce a ton of calories. So something like oaks. Oaks are across the United States. I don't think there's any state without oak trees. And acorns can be a huge part of anyone's diet if they're willing to take the time and learn about them. And that's not something that's radical or anything. It's something that's been done for thousands of years. It's just in in our lifetime, in our parents' lifetime, that that knowledge and that experience has been mostly lost. But it's not something that's weird or inaccessible or any of those types of things.
5: Absolutely, um, I, I think this is actually a decent cutting off point for this episode. And then the next in, in in the in the next episode in the feed here, we will focus more on. Ecology, focus um, more on soil and maybe get into like permaculture and some other kind of stuff. Just I would love to yeah, learn more about, you know, specific soil stuff and, you know, different, you know, more insight to our current like growing situation overall as like a country and how, you know, stuff is changing. But um, would you like to uh, plug anything related to you or any other like resources on this topic before we uh, sure. head out?
8: Absolutely. So we are a podcast. Go check us out for pearls.com or spotify wherever you're listening to this podcast you can go check out some of our work we're also on instagram and facebook like everyone else and uh you can go follow us over there
5: fantastic um if you want to keep up to date on stuff for this show you can follow cool zone cool zone media and happen here pod on twitter and instagram and you can catch more it could happen here daily in this feed uh see you tomorrow bye <laughs>
2: Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. It's
5: soil time. Hello, welcome to <laughs> It Could Happen Here. I like we're, ta- that. <laughs> we're talking about we're talking about dirt today. Big, big, big dirt fans here. We love we, we love dirt. We love soil. Um and to help us talk about soil, dirt, ecology, growing, for, I don't know, foraging, all of this kind of stuff, we have uh, Andy from the Poor Pearls Almanac a podcast about you know what to do after you know stuff kind of crumbles away slowly, kind of kind of like kind of like our podcast, um, and Hopefully not like uh, our soil. Hopefully well <laughs> I got some bad news for you there. <laughs> some of us are not great at cultivating soil, which is what we are talking about today is how to avoid getting oh well, not avoid, like how can we help help against our soil just blowing away? <laughs> yeah. Um yeah, that is that is that is our discussion. I I, I wrapped up like a week of research on California's sp- specific climate and drought and what all the farmers are doing. Um, And a lot of their soil is blowing away. And so far, their solution to that is just spray more water on it, which the problem is, there's not tons of water. Um, (laughs) So let's talk about dirt. Let's talk about soil. I will hand it over to the resident soy boy, the soil expert here. I love that. Because I don't know what I'm talking about with dirt. My puns are getting famous. I know. I, I have th- that was that was just that I was just ripping ripping off of uh, a title of one of his episodes. So that's not original. Blame him for the pun. Sorry, <laughs> I do that a lot. So in terms of building soil, there's
8: it's really a basic idea of how to do it, and it generally comes down to understanding what a soil needs and how to let the soil build through rest. And generally speaking, when we plant our annual crops, what happens is you put your tomato plants in the ground, whatever it might be, you get a great harvest, you, you know, let them die, clear them out. And then the next year, maybe you throw some more compost on it, or maybe you're like, yeah, I, I just don't have time, I won't do it. And you'll grow and you might have a pretty decent crop again. And then usually by like the third year, you start to notice that your plants just aren't doing as well. Like all the nutrients and the minerals have started to get taken out of the soil. So you can either continuously add new material to it, which
5: comes from somewhere. Doesn't seem very sustainable.
8: Yeah, Yeah, it's absolutely not sustainable. And the alternative is to think about how can I build up that soil without doing that? And there's a couple different ways we can do that. The soil can get built from things like cover crops. So we can add cover crops, generally things like nitrogen fixing plants, clovers, hairy vetch, And a number of others that we can use to help fix nitrogen into the soil, or we can add other things to add biomass. So, certain grasses and things like that can be planted and they'll mine deep into the soil to pull up nutrients. When they die off, or you can cut them down, Mm -hmm. they start breaking down, they return those nutrients back, but they're on the topsoil now. So, that's another way we can do it. Alternatively, if we're talking about a little bit more land, you can take advantage of using animals. So, chickens, rabbits, sheep, cows, whatever it might be, reintroduce nutrients back into the soil through things like rotational grazing. And there's a, you know, that, that's a whole other subject of you know, how different methods are better or worse for fixing nitrogen and all the other nutrients back into the soil. And um, we can talk about it. I don't know if you want to spend an hour yeah, talking I, about I, it. But... I,
5: I assume that def- that definitely depends on the scale of your operation, I would assume.
8: Absolutely, and you can do that on a smaller scale, not necessarily cows, but like chickens, chickens. Can, yeah, yeah chickens can be run through chicken tractors, which can be as small as you know three feet by six feet and we
5: were ma- yeah we, we were making some fertilizer a few months ago, and basically we raked up well i i did i I watched as people did this because I was lazy uh, I watched people just rake up tons of sheep shit. Um because there' we have a, a, there's a little sheep set up um and they were just raking up all the shit and putting it into a pile of dirt and now it's been like a it's been like a month or two, and we should have some okay fertilizer by now, which we can you know use however we see fit but chickens 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 as well you not not everyone probably has sheep or access to sheep <laughs> um but chickens are surprisingly easy to get. Yeah, and depending on
8: the city you're in, uh, you can live in pretty dense places and still legally have chickens. Yeah, you might totally. have to get comfortable with the idea of slaughtering a rooster, but other than that, you know, there's, it's funny because what you'll see is like in the early spring, everyone gets chickens, and then by like July, you'll, on on Craigslist or Facebook or Instagram, everyone's like free rooster to good home because they can't slaughter <laughs> it
5: themselves uh yeah i've had I've had to watch a few roosters get the uh, get the old old axe oh there yeah. there was there was this one rooster that would always wake up as we were all going to bed we would have like we'd have like a movie night um and we're like going to bed at four a m and that's when the rooster starts and we're like no, <laughs> we're trying to sleep and we're like we need to kill that rooster <laughs> yeah it's <exactly>. time to <laughs>
8: It it's only time. takes one bad day to be like, I cannot listen
5: to that sound again. <laughs> at least at least it went to some good use. Yeah, anyway, back to dirt. Yeah. Let's see, where were we? We're talking we're talking about reintroducing stuff via, you know, chemical means, I mean, or or just using animals and stuff. Or or rotating plants. Yeah. So there there's a
8: bunch of different ways you can do it, and obviously it's all defined by what your site needs. You know, we're, the way we're talking at this point has been mostly about like you already have a garden and that soil needs to be amended to improve it. Yeah. But if you're wor- working with, say, a site that has almost no topsoil. So, for example, a friend of mine out in California lives near a highway and they had scraped all of the topsoil around the highway to build up the highway. So yeah. now there's no topsoil. It's just garbage. So how right. do you build that soil up? And there's a bunch of different ways we can do that, whether it's through taking advantage of free resources like um mulch like if you see a tree getting cut down and they chip it all up yeah those guys have to pay to get rid of it most of the time or they they get paid just enough to cover their gas so if you see it down the street and say hey you want to drop it off at my house they'll happily do it
5: yeah we we just found out there is this business in Portland that you can email them to do a chip drop where they take all of their mulch and wood chips and drop them off in your driveway. And it's completely free. You you, you you don't need to pay for it. You can just schedule them to drop it off anywhere. And a short aside, we also found out that they don't require address verification. So you can do this as a prank. Um, you can find out where the mayor lives um, or where, I don't know, a particularly bad person lives. Let's say he wears armor and he brutalizes people and threatens them with guns while having a badge. You can find out, if, if you know where he lives, you can just deliver tons of wood chips right, right on his driveway. Um, and and they, they have a rule on their website is once a delivery has been initiated, so like once the truck leaves you know, their office, it cannot be stopped. There's no way. <laughs> There's no way preventing it, and they don't contact the house beforehand. No way preventing it. Just a random, uh, random wood chip drop anywhere in any driveway. It's a magical system. But you can also just use this for you know getting wood chips to help grow things. Yeah, um, and, and
9: mulch is such an underrated medium. It's like really good for like water retention and helping soil not dry out too fast. It's it's not just like aesthetically nice looking <laughs> and accessible. Yeah. it's also like really good for the plants.
8: So I'll add two caveats to that. And the first is that uh, it's really important to know what species you're dealing with that are the wood chips because certain species have chemicals in them that will reduce growth uh, hmm. or stop hmm. it completely. So like black walnuts are really well known in the, on the East Coast as having uh, what's called juglone. And there's a bunch of different species that, are, again, are probably unique to where you live that you should just be aware of. And the second one is that mulch and wood chips are fantastic for your garden however the one drawback is that for the wood chips to break down they actually utilize a lot of the nitrogen in the soil so that's Ah. just so you may have a bit of a nitrogen problem or some kind of nitrogen fixing so it'd be more important to think about cover crops and uh, either adding fresh compost or whatever it might be to help offset some of that nitrogen absorption so so it's not it's a great resource it's just not Perfect. You just have to be sure. aware of the limitations
5: of it. I would like to touch on why we're in in a bit of a pickle. Like, what 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 have we done agriculturally to kind of make our soil so unfragile? Like, what what did we do wrong um, on like even on, on like a larger scale? And, and how how might someone like me, who just has a small setup, you know, not make the same mistakes in my own personal garden?
8: Sure. So. The the beginning of the food system becoming what it is today really started with oil. Um, access to things like petrochemicals uh, allowed us to start rethinking about how we grew food and forgetting about traditional methods, primarily things like using manure. I mean, you think about it. You eat, all the nutrients go out the sewer, and then they never go back into the soil. And we're... Con- constantly taking from the same soils year after year. And the only way we continue to produce is because we're dumping chemicals Mm -hmm. and forcing the soil, which is just a medium at this point, just dirt. It's not soil. And we're just making it grow food because we're adding the chemicals the plants need, but we've destroyed things like the bacterial community, the fungi community, all these different things that are so crucial for our food systems to be resilient in terms of how can we move forward? Building that soil is super important and understanding these cycles of where our food comes from the The biggest challenge really is that we're trying to create ethical food systems under an unethical economic model sure so, so like you'll see like permaculture is like a, a really big thing today, and yeah. for a lot of good reasons because it challenges that methodology. However, because of things like capitalism, we can't really have an honest conversation about the fact that A lot of people will tell you, you can make money doing permaculture and you, some people do, but it's not, it's not really what people think. Like there's no way to to ethically grow food and not have the problems of, you're, you're facing or competing with somebody that doesn't have any ethical guidelines Mm -hmm. or framework that you have to compete with. And I mean, there's plenty of things we can say that there are problems with permaculture. And if you want, we can talk about that further, but the. This is the the primary reason why we can't really fundamentally rethink our food system until things either fall apart or capitalism no longer exists or there are major subsidies for these alternatives, whatever it might be.
5: Yeah, let's see, like, is even something like, would you even say just like someone buying pre-made fertilizer should be avoided in that case. Like would you would you rather, you know, someone try to make it ourselves and like what's cheaper? You know, like is is just buying fertilizer cheaper than having to actually make it yourself, which is another kind of problem with these types of things that it turns out, you know, the way to make things better might cost some people more money, you know, than people who don't really have as many resources, you know, just like a regular person who's trying to do this, you know, they don't have as much money and would would just buying pre-made chemicals be you know, easier and cheaper than doing work to kind of build it up more like, quote, unquote, naturally. I mean, obviously,
8: I think under capitalism, anything that's efficient in terms of time and um, taking advantage of things like scalability, which, you know, mining nutrients is always going to be more efficient when you're doing it on a massive global scale, like you really can't compete dollar for dollar. And that's, at least with what I do with the Poor Pearls Almanac, we don't really focus on that, and instead say, "This is how things should be, and how do we do that, and when do we need to start doing that?" If we know that what exists today isn't sustainable, and that ultimately this is gonna fall apart in some capacity.
5: Yeah, you talked more about like uh, trees specifically, and I would love love to hear more about that. You know, outside of just you know making your own like edible garden. Other, doing, doing other kind of ecology-related related work?
8: Sure. So trees have, you know, so many benefits outside of the fact that they can produce food. Um, we could look at things like how they can manage a landscape and reduce temperature extremes, the way they can um, maintain soil quality because of um, reducing things like runoff from major storms, which are happening more and more frequently. Yeah. Further, like I said, they do produce food. And they, sometimes they produce food for us. Sometimes they produce food for our livestock. Um, additionally, there's a a process called silvopasture, which is essentially when you think of a farm, you think of a cow walking around in a field instead that cows walking around in, um, a managed forest and the forest, uh, floor gets enough sunlight to grow grass. So you're getting the benefits of the grass as well as the trees. And you can either be using those trees for lumber or for food crops or whatever it might be, and you're getting the best of both worlds. And it, in a lot of ways, the silvopasture system more accurately represents the way the landscape had been managed, especially here in the Northeast and generally the East Coast by indigenous people. Um, you know, they, they weren't using cows, they were doing prescribed burns and things like that, but those environments are actually better for things like deer, which like to, like to exist on like the margins of forests where they're getting the best of both worlds. So that was how they managed a wild, essentially they were wild grazing the the,
5: the native species. Yeah. And we just, just trying to think there's like, we, we, we don't really have anything like that on a, on a large scale anymore. We've, we've just jumped right into like the, the field and pasture
8: thing. Yeah. I mean, you think about it, it makes sense that we haven't because of the fact that to do that requires Individuality in terms of how we manage a landscape—you can't run a machine yeah. through you a silva
5: pasture. You can't just make like a template and apply it to every situation. Everything is much more unique based on their individual environment and ecosystem.
8: Yeah, and then it becomes less efficient to manage in terms of how we manage things as a, a successional thing, where we you know, have you go through the field and you seed it with a giant machine because you can do it faster that way. You can add whatever amendments you need more quickly when it's just a flat piece of land with nothing in the way so on and so on it just it doesn't it goes right in the face of how we think of efficiency despite yeah. the fact through its diversity it's more resilient to what's coming in terms of climate change
5: especially in the long run yeah yeah um in the last episode we talked a bit about guerrilla gardening can this like intersect with with this idea of like growing in the forest um is there you know i, I assume there's like a a, a, a decent crossover there
8: Absolutely. So generally speaking, a lot of people that are into silvopasture are also thinking about things like tree crops. And one of the things that I really focus on is thinking about foods that we don't traditionally think of as foods, or at least not as like staple crops. So like while people might be familiar with kind of the odd fruits like persimmons, like you might know Mm -hmm. what a persimmon is, you might have one or two or maybe make persimmon bread. That's not usually a, a large part of anyone's diet.
5: No. (laughs) And
8: and that's like, that's the challenge that we really have is while people like to incorporate these types of things in permaculture into, you know, how they think about their relationship with the environment, like nobody's giving up their toast in the morning. And that's, you know, a third of your diet or whatever it might be. And that's where we need to fundamentally shift how we think about food.
5: So you're saying that we need to change in order to address these large systemic issues that have caused many problems we need to change the way we extract resources from the earth and maybe reevaluate how much we do so
8: <laughs> yeah i mean you know it's, it's no small feat is what i'm saying you know?
5: i know i'm just saying like you know that's the this spe- specific thing around like food and diet is the same root problem we have with climate change on a larger scale of like just doing you know progress for progress's sake without realizing that this is not a sustainable way to do things and infinite growing and like infinite expansion maybe is a bad idea. Yeah. And maybe has some conseq- that, Who has yeah. some consequences?
8: Yeah, who would have thought that infinite growth on a finite planet wasn't sustainable? Oops! <sighs> yeah. The point that I'm really trying to drive home is that we really need to rethink what food looks like and it has to be in a meaningful way that it can't just be those odds and ends. And that, the thing I think people forget is that food is a huge component of our culture and our identity. Absolutely. When we think about food and identity, the reason why our identity is surrounded around food is because food is the byproduct of the environment that we live in. And it's, you know, for, it's been a couple generations and we went from the reason why Italians eat XYZ is because that's what grows there to I eat this because my family does, but I don't know why. And and that's uh, the way those things relate to one another is been
5: completely lost. And we need to figure out how to do that again. Can can you point to any examples of these things you're talking about of like, you know, of systems existing now or in the past that have kind of shown these methods of viewing food and viewing, you know, growing and, and soil cultivation?
8: So like any indigenous practice, and like we say indigenous, and we usually mean like north america or south america or australia but even if you look across europe you know before capitalism kind of got its claws into the rest of europe or all of europe like there were plenty of indigenous practices and in some places they continue and the the way that people lived um, reflected the the needs of their ecology and how people could relate to that ecology the reason why nordic countries have high amounts of meat in their diet is because of what grows there and what, how they can utilize what grows there to feed themselves through animals and things like that.
5: Hmm. Yeah. I mean, that is, that is generally what we, we hear is, you know, look at the the various indigenous methods of, of growing um, and how they, how they fed people in their immediate area. I'm thinking like, how can we take those similar ideas and scale it up? Because I mean, they weren't growing food for 7 billion people, but I know like we grow way too much food. For sure. what? For how many people? maybe not too much food. Just we distribute it in a very inefficient way, because we don't do it for what we need. We do it for profit. So, like we we, we throw away so much food that we grow as okay. you know globally. Um, but I you know when I think of these more you know like older methods of growing food, I it's it's harder for me to picture that you know feeding an entire city, right? Sure. And I don't know what the solution is here. This isn't really the thing I focus on a lot. But is there a way to kind of scale up these like smaller scale things that, you know, people can do in their own yards on any kind of mass level? Or is that just kind of rely back on the same thing? We need to like re reevaluate how much we consume and how we consume it.
8: So I think there's a little bit of both. I think we do need to reevaluate what we're consuming and the volume that we're consuming as well as, um, you know, the, the waste specifically in terms of those two things yeah. that uh, we tend to lose a lot of food that otherwise is useful. Yeah. Um, but also there is a lot of opportunity and while places like maybe New York city, because of the, the development around the city might not, there might not be any way possible to grow food like within the metropolitan or even the region. Yeah. We, we know that like, and this is something I probably should have checked before the staff, but it's something like there's four acres of arable land for every person on earth. And four hmm. acres is like a, That's a lot. That's plenty. That's plenty. That's absolutely plenty. Um, but like one of the things that's really important is to start thinking about how we can decentralize these systems in order to have those clusters of places where those things are more, um, capable of growing and handling the production that's necessary. And to maybe rethink about what, what urbanization really should be and what it should look like. And, you know, in, in the future, while things might seem like well you can't ask people to leave new york city as climate change worsens and our food systems start to fall apart that might be a much easier conversation to have while today that seems kind of radical
5: yeah and at the very least maybe we should maybe we shouldn't make any more new york cities absolutely <laughs> um is there any like resources online that you can point to that talks more about these types of topics or like books or like anything in this general, both growing on like the growing side of things. And then like the more like ecology side of things.
8: So Tom Wessels has this really great book called the myth of progress, which talks about complex system science. And essentially what that is, is decentralization and um, the, the benefits of having diversity within a community. And yeah. the fact that any, any power that's, you know, centered in one specific place ends up having imbalances and has less resiliency. And that plays until it's focused around ecology. But I think it's really helpful, especially if you're an anarchist, I think
5: you can, you yeah, really you can view a lot of it. systems through the lens. Yeah, yeah.
8: So that that's definitely one place to look. Uh, in terms of like growing food. I, I don't know if there's really any books that really address it from this perspective of climate change and decentralization. But there's plenty of work online about silvopasture, and you know food force any of these types of things youtube has like a a vast array of resources and of course if you're interested in this kind of stuff you can come check us out on our podcast four pearls almanac we uh the the entire show is pretty much around this subject matter so if you want to learn more about it come check it out
5: yeah absolutely definitely um if this specific topic you have a, a wonderful catalog of stuff discussing this um and i just want to thank, thank you th- th- and th- thank you so much for coming on this show to kind of talk about these topics you know me and robert and you know chris we've more of like a background in like history and that kind of thing we are we are not super avid plant people like we're 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 we're, 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 we're trying to start growing more stuff just our, ourselves personally but i am definitely not educated to-, to talk on this and i'm very very uh, happy that you were able to and you're generous with your uh, time and knowledge so thank thank you so much yeah definitely check out uh their show on you know wherever you get your podcasts and you can follow this show twitter on instagram at cool zone media and happen here pod um any 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 final final notes
9: grow some food yeah
5: grow some food grow some food that is <laughs> what if i've i've asked that question a lot and that answer has come up many times <laughs> just grow grow food okay there you
1: go <laughs> grow food
2: Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What
4: spicy, my pumpkins? Let's, I'm let's, Robert let's try Tins. that again. That was too no, loud. No, no. It was, what, it was clipping. We're, we're, it's not clipping. You just don't like me saying, what's spicy, my pumpkins? But I said it, and it can't be unsaid.
5: Uh-huh, it was clipping. Because
4: this is It Could Happen Here, a daily podcast about the end of some things and the beginning of other things. And right now it's an episode about the beginning of fall because it's officially fall and I'm drinking a pumpkin spice, black coffee
10: Happy for you. It's also not officially fall yet. It may may be officially fall by the
5: time this podcast comes out. It is legally
4: fall when I have my first pumpkin spice, black coffee of the year and it's cool outside.
10: That's because you're a monster.
4: That's because I'm a happy man who is enjoying a fall beverage. Um, On this episode today, we have of course, Garrison. Garrison. Hello. Hi Garrison. How are you doing?
5: I'm doing fine.
4: Great. We also have uh, my friends uh, B and Elaine. B, Elaine, you 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 were on the show recently to talk about terrorism a year ago.
11: Re- recently, a year ago. A year ago. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Recently, a year everything ago.
4: before yesterday is a year ago, and uh, and now you're on to talk about surviving.
11: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like crafty surviving punk shit. I don't yeah, know. I
4: don't know. <laughs> We, we brought you made it up, this far you on because you were like two of the most useful skill filled people that I know. You were both wilderness survival instructors, primitive skill instructors for a while, and you have a small farm in a town that I won't name. And you do all sorts of cool shit like storing food and making arrows and other things that are alleged. And what I like about that is that, you know, when we talk about like collapse and, and things falling apart, there's this kind of like I don't know, almost like mimetic obsession with like i want to get out into the woods and away from the city and that's the only way to survive and like the reality of the situation is that's a terrible way to survive
11: yeah it's yeah. awful there's yeah. nobody in the woods there's nobody I mean, in the woods and no people need in it. The woods. yeah
4: <laughs> and it's you know there's there are there are a small chunk of the human race that is capable with with just themselves of like surviving in the middle of nowhere with nobody But there's even among that population, there's a small fraction who are capable of doing that and not shooting themselves after a long enough period of time. And you wouldn't want to meet that person generally. Well, and
11: I think the other the other thing about that is like the sort of fetishization of of, you know, individualist survival skills is based on this idea that what. People when people were like living off the land that they were doing it by themselves alone no, in the woods, they which did is it in communities. There's
10: there's very few people that survived alone for a long time. And even of the people that had the skills, like even Ishii wandered out of the woods after yeah. I think eight years of being by himself and was finally like, fuck it. I, yeah, I like He was lonely. <laughs> he was the last of a indigenous group in California where everyone else in his tribe had been basically had been genocided. Yeah. And him in like the last like five people went off and hid mm-hmm. for very good reason. Um yeah. and then after disease and stuff, then it was just him. And he spent, I forget how many years by himself. And after a while he finally was like, fuck it. Being by myself is not worth it. And he came out and it was just after the turn of the century. And so he ended up being adopted by a bunch of anthropologists and Mm -hmm. spending the rest of his time in San Francisco. It's actually where we get most of a lot of like the anthropological knowledge of how to make arrows because he was very much like, I'm the last of my group. So I will actually show people how to do flint napping and how Mm -hmm. I make arrows and how I hunt. And
4: yeah, and that's, but I mean, and, and that's, there's kind of the point there that like, with all of those skills, being one of that very small number of people who could, you you drop that guy alone with nothing in the woods and he'll figure it out. He didn't want to do that.
7: <laughs> like, <laughs> no. Because it's miserable. Yeah. Um,
11: he, he, in fact, went into San Francisco and was like, well, white people wiped out my entire like, yeah. civilization. <laughs> but I'm lonely. <laughs> I guess I'll go make friends with these anthropologists and live with them and teach them what I know. Yeah.
4: <laughs> again, a lot of the folks who are kind of reaching out online being like, Hey, I don't have a lot in the way of money. Uh, I'm never going to be able to move to the woods and buy a farm or something. Well, you don't, you don't really need to. And like, if shit really does hit the fan, wherever you live, there's probably parks unless it's Detroit. Um, In which case there's abandoned Walmarts, like you can make it work. Like there's, it's so, so this is an episode about kind of the skills that you can acquire and build for not a lot of money, more or less wherever you live that will help you build resiliency um, but also build resiliency as part of a community, as opposed to living in the woods with a knife, sleeping under mud. <laughs> There's a great short story that y'all turned me on to by Corey Doctorow in a, a book of short stories called Radicalize. That was was it just called The Mask of the Red Death? I mean, that's that another, one is that's called The story. Mask of yeah. the Red Death. Yeah. And the original Mask of the Red Death is set obviously during. Um, I'm sure everybody read it in high school. Like, right? It's, it's set during the the bubonic plague with these rich people who like decide to just hole up and party to escape the plague, and they all die of the plague and doctoros is a bunch of like libertarian survivalist crypto bros who build a fortress in the desert in order to survive the end of days and it turns out that like a bunch of bad stuff happens like there's disease and 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 civil conflict but like people figure it out and all of the crypto bros die shitting themselves to death because (laughs) their water system It's
11: obvious from the start what's going to happen. And everybody who comes along to help them, <laughs> yeah. they start shooting at yeah, it. so they're, they're like, well yeah. fuck you, we'll just wait until you're dead because yeah. you're shitting yourself because your water's
4: bad. I think we all have we all have elements of some libertarian tendencies in us, which, you know, it's not bad to learn self reliance and it's certainly not, not even bad to want to like live outside of the city. But in a lot of ways, living in a living in an urban environment surrounded by a community. Depending on the situation, can be even more resilient because, like, yeah, an isolated farmstead. There's benefits to, but also, it's really easy to surround and just shoot people who are living on their farm in the middle of nowhere if shit really does hit the fan. It and keeps then you take happening. It, it happens all the time. It <laughs> happened in like El Salvador and shit when they had their economic crash. So I don't know. Where do you want Where do you guys want to start?
10: Um, I know you had a couple of different things that you want that wanted to talk about. Like preserving food is a big one. Yeah, and then I mean making stuff and doing things is kind of they're sort of different where would you like to actually start with that i
5: think we could start with kind of the diy element branching off of our original discussion on primitive skills and then in like part two we can go more into like food and like scan like in like foraging um and preservation and stuff
10: cool i mean so diy um i guess now there's a lot of stuff about like there's i don't know there's all this stuff about like survival skills and all this stuff and both of us kind of came into the idea of making stuff and doing things by being punks um and it's kind of funny (laughs) Yeah. yeah having no money but also just their diy like do it yourself was a very like kind of 90s punk thing that came into the mainstream like i actually was pulling out some of my old books and i think it's funny to see the like progression because i have you know, the really lovely, like, Food Not Lawns that goes into a whole pile of really fantastic things that came out that, I don't know, the first Food Not Lawns house I saw at the town I was in was in, like, 2005 or 6, but this book came out in 2006, but it was this entire movement of, like, making community and doing, and, like, how to do stuff yourself. Fuck the
4: HOA, grow corn on your front lawn.
10: Yeah, and then I have... From 2011, the bus DIY guide to life that includes everything from, like, how to do worm composting to how to make your own makeup and, like, finance a house.
11: And that's, that's <laughs> like the magazine, right? Yes. Yeah. So it's kind of interesting
10: <laughs> because it definitely, like, was a thing that I watched come into the mainstream. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it started as a lot of punks trying to figure out how to do things because they had no money and... But also different from a lot of you know like woodworking or craft books that really are you know buy these seven thousand dollars worth mm-hmm. of tools and now you yeah. too can learn you too how to can use make a table lane. yes <laughs>
11: and there's also there's also an ethos behind it right that like before I, I was I came at it first and foremost through being like a bike punk in the in the late nineties early two thousands being a bike punk and the idea of like the DIY ethos was less about The grid is going to collapse Mm -hmm. and like everything is going to fall apart and you're going to need to survive by the skin of your teeth. And it was a lot more, you know, at the tail end of the 90s and like the sort of golden era of neoliberal capitalism and office space and that whole cultural moment. The idea that life was alienated and shitty and Mm -hmm. it felt better to know how to do things that you needed in your day to day life for yourself using stuff you had made yourself or gotten from your community members. Um, yeah, resiliency is less about knowing you have a pile of dried food in the house
4: and know, more about looking at fresh food and knowing I know how to make that last the winter.
11: Yeah, and it's been interesting to see the way that, like, as that has gotten kind of mainstreamed into, like, you know, uh, the the... What is it? Primitive... There's a bunch of different like primitive XYZ YouTube channels that get lots of traffic and shit. And as that all gets mainstreamed, there's this idea of like expertise that creeps back into it. And DIY was like firmly committed to the idea that everybody could learn stuff and listening to somebody who said they were an expert was a trap. And a lot of that was coming out of like the 70s when there was all of the like, you know, culty lifestyle shit that was like, hey, look. We're gonna teach you how to
4: change your life, and yeah, we're gonna we're gonna buy up all this land in Antelope, Oregon, and right, then we're exactly. gonna poison a buffet. And so
11: DIY was emphatically uh. not that. It was like there's skills, and you can learn skills, and the internet doesn't really exist yet, or not really. So you can read books about it, and you can have Skillshare. And, and because
10: there wasn't Twitter, we also all had a lot more time on our hands mm-hmm. and you
11: liked know. each other more. Yeah. <laughs>
10: but there's also like expertise was something that was handy to have you know like if i needed to rebuild my uh wheel on my bike and respoke it you wanted someone nice. who knew how to do it and so it's good to, to have a couple you. of people who yeah. had really intense deep knowledge of skills but the idea that you would ask someone like i need to change my bike tire tube because i popped it with everyone would have been kind of like really yeah. really like everyone should know how to do basic stuff and it's and it's OK, like the whole, you know, jack of all trades was is as a desirable goal, like it's OK to dabble in a million little things and be kind of mediocre, but have a sort of baseline understanding of a bunch of stuff. Now, you know, there's places that I kind of think that we went too far, but also, you know, before the American Health Care Act, we all definitely did a lot of uh, at home med care that we should not have. But there's also a lot of low stakes places that I think people have gotten away from just practicing and trying all sorts of crafty stuff as an ethos that is actually really good. And there's no harm to learning things like you're not going to hurt anything. And the only thing that's going to happen is you will have more skills and more to offer the people around you.
4: There's this idea under capitalism that we should all specialize because that is like the most profit generating thing to do is just specialize in the thing that makes you the most money. But it's like not only is it like not the best in a in a dangerous situation to only know how to do one thing that makes you money, but it's like it's not particularly good for your soul either.
11: And and there's also lots of different behavioral psychology like group analysis of if you present people with a situation that they feel unprepared for and there's an a person that they identify as an expert in a group who they can defer to. Pretty much every time the group that's like, oh, we'll defer to this one expert because they know everything and we'll just do whatever they say ends up making worse decisions than if you have a group where everybody feels like, oh, well, I like I can at least get a handle on what's going on and we can all talk through it and like make make calls. Deferring to experts doesn't necessarily help you now that there's obviously... Cases we've mentioned medical care already, where like there's actually knowledge is very important. Skill sets are very important, but the idea that there's people who are just like, yeah, inherently more knowledgeable of things that you couldn't possibly understand is so where where do you recommend
4: like people start with like like you've got a bunch of books right now, and obviously if you can afford books, that's a good call.
11: But or like, libraries. Libraries, or libraries have a lot of these books. Yeah. yeah. <laughs>
4: yeah. On preserving food and like growing stuff on your lawn but even if you don't have a lawn you can still like there's certain like one thing that strikes me because we've been canning and pickling a bunch lately is you know different vegetables and fruits and whatnot are cheaper at different points in the year and even if you live in an apartment in the inner city and will never have more than a garden box at best you can buy food when it's cheap and preserve it um and not only save yourself a little bit of money, but you can like also uh uh you'll you'll understand you'll, every time you encounter preserved food in like a grocery store, you'll be looking at a thing that you know where it comes from. It's not just like a mystery jar of preserved food that was made by some process of science. So I don't know. I'm interested in like where you guys, someone coming in having only. Uh, specialized in whatever it is, allowed them to pay the rent. Uh, wh- wh- where's your where's your recommended start point for people?
10: Um, I think it's picking something that is low stakes that you. Enjoy, like, yeah, honestly, one of my friends, um, her entry into doing DIY stuff was, you know, she had lots of makeup and everything, and she was like, I'm going to make body scrubs. How do I do that? And, you know, looked up how to make body scrubs, how to make You know, a lot of it is, oh, getting salt and grinding up a rosemary that she found in someone's front yard and putting it together, you know, but just something simple that you enjoy that you would love to be able to, you know, have a little bit more say over because it's most basic. A lot of the DIY stuff is you can make something very specific to what you like. So uh, for myself, actually, one of the first things I ever started doing was in high school, just altering clothing. I had an old yes, like, learning how
4: to sew. Is 30, huge. Yeah,
10: I had an old thirty dollar junk practice, uh, like kids sewing machine and just the cheapest one that Sears used to sell and. Could definitely just take that and start putting seams in and alter clothing and be like, this shirt is now a T-shirt. It was long sleeve before. And
11: that also ties in with, you know, DIY, just to sound like old punks for a minute. The DIY definitely also came out of things like the riot girl scene in a big way and like the attention to like body awareness and like moving away from body negativity and the recognition that as a general rule, off the rack clothes are not. And certainly 20 years ago were extra not actually designed to fit most people's bodies and it was like hard to find clothes that fit you right and yeah so like sewing was a big one um bikes because we were broke and didn't have cars so figuring out how to fix bikes and you know everything that mechanically happens on a bike is right there and you can see it happen and it maybe requires a screwdriver and then eventually maybe some other tools but there's lots of and there's free you know, resources a lot most cities I've spent any amount of time and
4: you can find like You can find like a community bike shop where if you have to pay anything, it's very minimal. And a lot of cases you just sort of like show up and, you know, there's space
11: to use.
10: Yeah. When um, like I know in Santa Cruz, there was the bike church in Portland. There's the bike farm. And then,
11: yeah, in Philly, there was also a bike church because it turns out the basements of churches are. are Yeah, there were a couple of spots like that in Dallas. And it's
4: uh, yeah. And I think it is like this mix of like with the body scrub stuff, like what is something that appeals to you that you you're interested in? And also what is with the bike stuff? What is something that's like, just doggedly practical, like you get a bike, you, you you need a bike to get around, you should probably know how to fix shit on it.
10: I think the reason I say you should pick something that appeals to you, especially is because a big thing with DIY was that you're doing it yourself. And there are so many skills that are valuable to learn from other people. Mm-hmm. It is wonderful to craft in community. It is wonderful to work with other people in community. It's wonderful to teach skills and gain them. But also, I've seen this growing idea with the as specialization for so many things, especially services comes in, that people are always like, oh, wow, knitting, I've always wanted to learn. I need to take a class in that, or I need to... And it's really important, I think, for people to realize that. You can learn things. Yeah. we are very good at learning things and you don't necessarily need a teacher for more complex things you do, but starting with something that you really like and that you find really interesting, you've already thought about it. So when you start with, you know, for my friend, starting with making bath salts and face masks and stuff, it was something she had already been thinking about quite oh a bit. And thinking about stuff. So when she started looking up recipes to mix and looking on the internet and looking at ingredients, it was things she already cared about. So it's easier to learn something that you are interested in. And it's easier to learn something that you want to do. But we are all capable of learning for ourselves, not every single thing, but especially just for craft projects. And so starting with that so that you can pick up a book or you can read an article or you can watch a YouTube video and you don't need To take some like, hundred and fifty dollar weekend class before you can. It's you know
4: a big part of the resiliency building. Like something you may scoff like when you're thinking about survivalism, and talking about like making bath scrubs. But a lot of the 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 skills you would learn putting that together are useful in making like a salve or making like a making soap,
5: making Making soap. soap
4: things that you actually need. Like when I was traveling, I lived on the road like out of a car and out of backpacks for off and on all over the world for years. And I would make my own medicated, cause we would get, we would be cuts and scrapes and rashes and we were poor as shit. And often there weren't doctors where we were. So I learned how to use things like plantain and comfrey and yarrow and like beeswax and stuff in order to, to make medicated salves. And it, uh, it was something that interested me, but like, there's also a lot of like, it, it, there's a, there's a number of ro- roots into learning that sort of thing. And if you're learning how to make again, something as simple as like a face scrub learning where to find that information for free learning some of like the basic techniques in order to do that it, the, learning how to learn is uh is is applicable in a wider variety of of skill sets and it i i think it's so important to focus on what are you what are you interested in first as as opposed to just being like okay first i now i have to learn how to like splint a broken arm because like think shit's gonna hit the fans. like well maybe focus on something that's more exciting yeah. to you first and, and 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 build time in
5: your life to learn things that's an enjoyable process. What, one of the first things I did like years ago was I, I learned to sew specifically to make a cosplay, which <laughs> uh, is, you know, so, so I would just I would make me and my whole family different outfits for Comic-Con. So every year I would I would sew us whole whole new things. But that not only taught me sewing, it taught me how to do like uh, like, vacuum forming, to do molding, how to use, like, a heat gun, how to use, like, all, all these other types of tools, um, h- how to do, like, molding and castings, like, all of these types of things. I learned just wanting to make silly costumes, but now they're, like, you know, useful in a lot a lot, a lot of other ways.
4: Yeah, and that can be that can be expensive at the high end when you're like vacuum forming and stuff. Sure, right? yes. Y- your, your stormtrooper armor. But the, the the cheapest side of that thing, again, you can get a basic hand sewing kit for like five fucking dollars from a Walmart. And, and there's also makerspaces. To fix your shit. And there's makerspaces and like YouTube will do the teaching. You don't have to pay for a teacher. The Taliban learned how to fly helicopters on YouTube. You can learn how to
11: fix your pants. And I think also you mentioned specialization before. It's come up a couple of times. Um, And there is, you know, the idea with specialization, the rationale behind specialization is, oh, well, you'll be better at it because that's what you do all the time. But that cuts both ways, because if you only do one thing all the time, then as you know, whatever the maximum threshold of your abilities is that's required of you, that becomes your baseline Like whatever in your day to day life, whatever it is that you're being asked to do, that's what you feel capable of. And on the flip side, there's with with the DIY approach with like teaching yourself shit, learning interesting shit. It's also practical and important and useful to be like, this is a thing that I'm going to do on a regular basis. So I'll get better at it. But also it's not, you know, there was, a, you know, the whole idea of there's what you do. And then there's your job and that these need not be the same thing because you want to be able to think, uh, think through things in a way that's not the way you're supposed to process things to make your boss happy. That mm-hmm. is not are, just yeah. what you do when you clock
10: in. You at the are more the than day. your career. You're more exactly. than your
4: career. And 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 your skill set need not be purely extractive. Yes. As a, you know, not just like, OK, I have to go do the thing in order to make money and then everything else is consumption like you can. You can transition like we're, we're and, and this is not a societal level solution because no. we talk a lot about like, well, yeah, you're not going to you're not going to make small personal changes to fix climate change, but changing your own particular attitude on how you approach the world from one that is I, I produce and then I consume to to one where you're thinking more about resiliency and what do I know how to do and what can I learn how to do um, is is helpful in a variety of ways.
11: On the note of, you know, the transferability of skills and recognizing that you already do things on a day to day basis that require specialized knowledge and require skill sets. Um, one of the things that I try and trot out at every possible opportunity, I worked with somebody in one of those volunteer bike shop spaces uh, down in New Orleans years ago. Um, and the whole purpose of that particular space was to make the skill set of bike repair more accessible to a population that relied on bikes to get places. And one of the folks I worked there with was like a very fem lady and was great because we would have young girls come into the shop and be like, my bike doesn't work. Somebody fix my bike. My bike doesn't work. I don't know how to fix a bike. And she was the one who would just be like, uh, your tire's flat. And they'd be like, yeah, I don't know how to fix it. Can you fix it? And she'd be like, well, you're wearing press on nails, right? And I'd be like, yeah, like, cool. How'd you put on your press on nails? And they'd walk through the steps of like, well, you sand your nails and then you put the glue on your nails and then you hold the press on nails on your fingernails for a little while and let them set. And then you're good to go. And she's like, great. You've just described exactly how you patch a bike inner tube. So now we just need to get the bike inner tube out. And here's the part that corresponds to your nail. And here's the part that corresponds like here's the glue and here's the you know, it's the same process. We just have to get the bike inner tube out and then back in again. But you already know how to do the part where you make the bike tube work again.
4: And that does hit on another important like, you know, apocalypse or whatever survival point where, again, all of our like fiction and movies focuses on like knowing how to use a gun or like being a a woodsman. One of the most useful skills, maybe the most useful skill you can have in any disaster situation is being able to teach people like like knowing how to understand, figure out what people know and how to get them the additional information they need in order to be more resilient and competent, because you're always better in a community of people who know how to handle their shit than alone.
10: And it builds on itself, too. You know, we both come from different backgrounds, but as we've been together and with the different trainings that we've had in just life the projects that we take on have become more and more complex. So, you know, where I used to like to practice gardening and stuff and doing a little bit of woodworking and things. And now, you know, we're doing various construction projects that we're kind of self-taught and we have some various Home Depot books on how to do them. But it's it doesn't feel nearly as intimidating because we've done steps to go to it. And because it's not an all or nothing, you don't have to suddenly be like, I'm going to DIY my entire life. Like, I definitely get that way. Sometimes where I'm like, I want to one day have everything in my house be made by someone that I know or myself. And it's really lovely to know craftspeople or to, you know, make do sit down at a pottery wheel and make your own bowls or whatever. But a lot of it is about practicing stuff when it's not an emergency. So that when you later on have need or you have the ability you have the time like you can do a bunch of different things so you know we refloored the room that we're in right now yeah you did
4: quite a process
10: but we didn't get there from nothing and we'd both done lots of different construction and measuring and other things in little bits just for fun for work for other stuff beforehand and a lot of these projects are things that are fun to do as a one off as a project. I've done, you know, embroidery with my kids just for fun, not because they need to suddenly embroider all of their clothing or they have to sew everything, but it's because it's a fun thing to do on a rainy day or, you know, try fixing a book, not because there's no ability to go on Amazon and order another book. But hey, look, I just we didn't add one thing to the landfill waste and we don't have to fix all of the stuff we have. It's a one time craft. But then later on, when stuff's falling apart or when we have supply chain issues or when stuff's not there, it's handy to know like, oh, you know what? Like we're having water rationing right now because during the one of the droughts I grew up in California, we had water rationing and it was my mom hauled out of the basement my grandmother's old ringer machine and we were doing the laundry in that because it could it conserved a hell of a lot of water and you could use the same water for load after load it's good to just have those things just kind of on hand that you've tried because when an emergency hits you don't want to be trying to search the internet or looking for something because you've never done it before and now it's necessary
4: and it's it's uh, again to the point of like how the how collapse really looks versus how it's often pictured you're not trying to replicate when you're when you're doing your own laundry that way you're not trying to replace civilization you're patching a hole like and and that's a lot of building resiliency is knowing that you have it's like it's being able to fix a bike tire it's patching a hole
11: and i do want to acknowledge that like this is a little bit more outside of the the dead center of mainstream in you know the united states and some other like wealthy industrialized countries and it's not like it has never stopped being the way most people in the yeah. world kind of. I, I have a story I like shipping. to tell
4: from these people I was billeted with in Iraq. These, uh, these guys were like pulling people out of airstrike craters every day. And we wanted to watch TV one night. We were in like a bombed out mosque that ISIS had been using. And they had a refrigerator that worked in a TV that ISIS had cut the cords with. And this guy just started pulling cords out of the fridge and in about five minutes had the TV working, had like hooked it, lashed everything together. It was like, he wasn't a TV repairman or a fridge. He just knew how electricity and shit worked and was able to figure out like, okay, I can just put all this shit
11: together. We're good to go. And and just also to loop back around to the whole like survival mentality a little bit. One of the things that like people that we've worked with, people who like have been in emergency situations that require you know complex skill sets and things up one of the big things is to have a role that you are competent in that you are ready to fulfill so you don't have to figure out your first step yeah you can get moving you can figure out your first step so for example. In the you know the supply chain issues that hit at the start of COVID and are hitting still and are re- yeah. recurring. Um the the idea of like oh there's no way to like there's no laundry soap say okay well we've got borax and these other baking, various and some know, baking, baking soda. soda borax right. We can we can make our own laundry detergent in a pinch and it'll work well enough. Cool. Don't have to have that be the thing that stresses us out and like adds to our our like paralysis.
4: Yeah. And again, a huge part of it is even how you approach the problem. It's not freaking out like, oh my God, there's no laundry soap. My how am I gonna clean my clothes? It's being like, Oh, there's no laundry soap. I'm gonna go online because we still have that and try to figure out are there other things that can make laundry soap that yeah. there are? And like it's it's accepting like a big, you talk about like wanting to be competent in a role. You don't have to know what that is from the start. As long as like the starting point isn't, I'm going to be the medic. I'm going to be the, this, I'm going to be the, the food girl. It's like, no, I'm going to start learning how to do things. I don't know how to do. And over a period of time, if I am dedicated to that, I will figure out the thing that I want to get most competent at.
11: Yeah. Cause I mean, none of, none of what we've been talking about in terms of the, various crafts and projects that we've undertaken are things that are like our primary function in the world it's just like well at some point it seemed like it was worth doing and so we did some of it and then we kept doing it and now and there's always pretty good at some of it for
4: literally everything we've talked about there's the you're a, uh, I don't know, a bougie hipster version of like doing it expensively, even with like woodworking. There can be a dirt cheap. I built a table for almost nothing when I was younger because it was like, well, I found this wood that the city chopped down and I bought sandpaper and stain for fifteen dollars. And then I got like a fucking base from Ikea and I had a functional table and I figured it out using YouTube and it's, you know, not as good a table as I could have made if I had ten or thousands of dollars in woodworking tools. But I had a table for years because of it. Um, and it's it's accepting the because I think people do get freaked out. There's such an emphasis on like having the gear, getting the equipment, stockpiling things and like really stockpiling competency is better because,
11: yeah. And I think the Amazon wishlist ability to just be like, oh, I want this specific thing. I can in three seconds look it up online and find the exact thing that I want definitely pushes in the opposite direction and makes people a little less resilient in that capacity because there's less of that idea that you can just have stuff.
10: And I would just say if people want to get started with it, it's really pick something low stakes, pick something simple because you Build the abilities. You build the ability to learn. And um, I had it explained to me once that it's like a hanger. Every skill you get acts as a hanger. And having really basic, simple things is actually super necessary. Because even, even the like hardcore primitive skills. I have some amazing books that I bought when I was 18. And I remember I had them and I looked through and I read it. And I was like, this is... Like reading magic, I understand absolutely none of it. And after a few years of doing things, not even necessarily traditional skills, but just things, practicing stuff, picking stuff, there was so much more framework that I had that I looked through it and suddenly there was stuff, concepts that I could hang all of these incredible skills on and we're like, oh, that never made sense to me. I understand it now because I've done simpler things and starting with something that doesn't seem like overwhelming to learn something simple and something, something low stakes, something that if you utterly mess it up, if you have a, uh, oh, what are the, like, like the regrets, the like craft epic craft Mm -hmm. fails, that it's okay. It's not a big deal because failing is part of learning. And so pick things that it's okay to fail at as your as your projects.
11: And and don't as many of us did in the late nineties and early two thousands when we didn't have health insurance of any description, you know, experiment on ourselves and our friends with herbs because we didn't have healthcare or access to doctors. Avoid doing that. Whatever buy that is
10: not low stakes.
11: (laughs) Yeah.
5: I'm I'm about to go do open surgery on my own infected wound now that you've told me this and I'm really excited. Real excited! <laughs> I got I I got an Exacto. I got some vodka. At
4: least let us good, get the hacks. We're good out. to go. No, you, you, the, you, the key is really hot glue. Same as, same okay. as surgical stitches. <laughs> I, I I have same as glue. surgical <laughs> stitches. Glue, no, no you want it to be I, hot Because then it sterilizes the wound.
10: I, hot glue doesn't blend. stick to anything. This is, is how I know you way are way. not a crafter: is hot glue does <laughs> hot glue not glue stick no to stick anything.
4: To <laughs> you just you you squirt it in there. You get it in there real good, and then you cover it with uh with super glue.
5: I do have a There's grandpa like a that has glue plug in the <laughs> I,
4: I
11: would put super glue in first. I in do the... have
5: a grandpa that has used super glue so many times to glue his body back together. It is well, astounding. Yeah, Actually, what, what, it, what was it was made, made for? Yeah, that's very funny. It's effective at that. Anyway. Here's our medical advice. That's, yeah. That's
4: the, that's don't
11: do any of the things that we're just said. There but if no you do want to
4: learn how to do searches, you can find guides where people do it on chicken, which is how if you're an EMT, you learn how to do it. And it's and, that's a that is a skill you can build for very little money that's useful and you don't have to start on your friends' bodies.
11: And <laughs> I will put in a plug for like wilderness first aid courses mm-hmm. are not yeah. cheap. And there are some real good ones out there. And as a as like a baseline, that is a real handy and helps you think about things creatively because wilderness first yeah. aid, unlike an ambulance driver, an ambulance driver is driving in a box with all the tools they need. Mm-hmm. And wilderness first aid, the assumption is no, ambulance you don't have coming. a box. Yeah, you, you don't, don't have, have a have box. Tools. And so you have to work it out.
4: Probably, you know, uh, uh, some plantain or something or some the right fucking kind of sap. There's like
11: shit you can use. Uh, sure. Which we will not proceed to attempt to lift stuff here and provide medical advice about to <laughs> no, 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 no. use plants. In don't the woods. go to a doctor.
10: Nope. No.
4: Use pine needles. <laughs> Make your own needle tea. Don't go to the healthcare. Craft books It'll you cure have. your COVID. Find a beehive and start sucking.
11: <laughs> and the other sources are playing. Open your mouth real wide.
5: And any other sources
4: are playing. The plag- more bees you get um, in, you the less COVID you there's have. There's a
11: great book called Making Stuff and Doing Things from way back in the day. Definitely recommend that one.
10: Um Country Know-How, like there's some a lot of old craft books. Actually, um, the entire book back collection of uh the Mother Earth magazine skill stuff. Like I have definitely made any setting enti-
11: magazine, not Emma Goldman's Anarchist yeah. newspaper.
10: But um I've definitely made solar powered dehydrators out of cardboard boxes and saran wrap yep. from the from Mother Earth magazine stuff and it's Absolutely fantastic. They're just old school guidebooks. Um, and But also anything that's listed as like DIY guides that have stuff that you would like to make and like to do are great.
11: The library is great. Use the uh-huh. library. Research librarians at the library are great. And if you're like, I'm trying to learn how to do this thing. Can you help me find books on it? Research librarians at the library, they have doctorates in how to help you do that. Yeah. And that's they just sit at desks all day waiting for me. And that's to ask them that. Questions.
4: And the, what you'll learn from them about how to answer those questions for yourself is also useful in the long run.
11: Mm-hmm.
4: Mm-hmm. Well, now go out and make a reflux still. Is that legal? well no not in most places but it's easy you just need a box inside of a box and you pour old beer in the center box okay, and you that's, put like saran wrap on top that's the
5: episode we did it <laughs>
2: Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
4: What's avoiding starvation, my autonomous neighborhood collectives? Uh, This is It Could Happen Here, a podcast about things not being as good as they are and trying to make them better. Uh, I'm Robert Evans, my co-host today. As many days, Garrison Davis. Garrison, say hello to the people.
5: Hi, people.
4: Garrison, what are we what are we what are we what are we what do we what do we what do we what do we do what are we doing today?
5: Nice Yoda like Thank you. Um we are going to be having a discussion on um food and food preservation and finding food. You mean like putting it in the freezer? Well, what if the freezer's not working?
4: The freezer is always working. This is America. Uh huh. Things like never break when down. When the here.
5: power goes out for two weeks.
11: Matt, aren't you from Texas?
7: <laughs> <laughs>
4: well, that's one of our guests for today. Uh, <laughs> uh, my friends B and Elaine, um, who who you've heard earlier this week, and who are going to talk about food storage, and particularly again, our, our focus this week is like we keep getting a lot of people being like, I have no money or very little money or very little space. I'm not going to be able to grow things. How can I possibly, you know, gather food, store food, like build resiliency? I don't have any any kind of farmland. And the good news is no matter where you live, things that are edible grow and you yeah. can get those things and you can find ways to make them last longer than they would if you just kept them in a sack. And that's a pretty cool thing to do. So I'm going to hand it over to Be and Elaine. Hello. After that.
10: Hey. I don't have much space. I don't have much money was kind of how I got into doing canning in the first place. For myself, I used to be very, very poor. I was on food stamps. I had no money. I was a broke punk. And one of my friends was like, oh, man, there's this farmer at the farmer's market. And if you help them clean up, they'll let you take away whatever leftover produce they have that they don't want. So you can just load up a bag with produce. All you got to do is help them load the truck at the end of the day. So that's what I did every single Wednesday for the next five years, no matter what, come hell or high water. But with that, that also became there's you start realizing that there's gluts and then lacks of things, um, much like, you know, everything that's happening in society now, just in general, There was seasons when there was nothing, but you were, it was easy to, at the end of a farmer's market day, walk home with a 50 pound flat of tomatoes and, you know, times of the year where it was nothing but cabbage and you might've wanted tomatoes a lot. And canning was great because it helped to equal out when I could get things without having to dive into the, you know, 60 bucks a month I got in food stamps and spend it at the farmer's market on that. Instead, I could use it to have a variety of vegetables or canned goods or other things in order to flavor my ramen.
11: Yeah, I first came at this kind of from working on farms where similarly, there are gluts. There are times of year where you literally cannot eat melons fast enough. And everybody who works on farms talks about getting the melon shits because you're eating as many melons as you possibly can. And it turns out that doesn't always agree with you. Um, yeah. And uh and then, you know, there's the time of year where, well, if you want to eat some month-old potatoes and some two-month-old squash and maybe some storage cabbage, great. And otherwise there's no produce to be had.
10: So, preserving food is well, there's a lot of different ways to do it, and it seems really intense a lot of the time because people talk about like botulism. You're going to die of botulism if you have home canned food. And so first off, there's just to dispel a lot of myths about things, there's actually really, really, really low instances of botulism. Um, I'm not going to say it doesn't happen, but there's actually very few cases of botulism per year, and a lot of them are from industrial canned goods.:
4: mm-hmm. Don't eat a can if it's bowing out at the sides of the top. Yep. Throw the can. Well, bury the can. Bury it in the woods far away.
10: But then also beyond canning, there's a lot of different ways of food preservation. You know, you were joking about like, but don't toss it in the freezer. I don't know. I toss a lot of things in the freezer.
4: It's certainly not a bad idea. Yeah. Yeah. I but... mean,
10: we got all sorts of animals from the farm in the freezer right now. Mm. We got a lot of blueberries because. A couple squirrels. Yeah, that was a random thing.
5: Yeah. <laughs> um, just, just some squirrels on the side.
10: Mm-hmm. Yeah, side
11: squirrels. For squirrel fajitas, uh huh. But yeah, no, it's, they were the it's not that project. having a, a freezer is a bad idea. It's just that the freezer depends on you know having power yeah. or at least having a backup bat power source um, or a generator or a generator or or or, or um and. Y- in the case that you don't have access to those things or can't afford to get a whole extra freezer and Mm -hmm. that fills up a substantial part of your very small power, the freezer, or can't afford to power the freezer. Um, You know, we, we definitely saw this past winter with the power outages that were caused by, um, you know, inclement weather. That it suddenly became very hard to acquire dry ice because dry ice will keep stuff cold for longer. But everybody who's gone camping and used dry ice in their cooler knows that. So as soon as there's an interruption in people's ability to refrigerate their food, the entire regional stock of dry ice is going to disappear. So what we're what we're looking at more in what we're talking about today is a little bit more like the things that you don't need to keep anywhere but like a cabinet that maybe doesn't get boiling hot Mm -hmm. and if it's sort of a room temperature cabinet you can store a lot of stuff
10: i've personally found the backs of closets like think about all of the areas that you don't clean that you're like i just shove things back here and hope that they disappear because i don't actually care about them or like the backs of broom closets um that actually for a long time was my place where i would store canned goods because you can just stack the pallets of jars the flats of them because if you buy jars from this Supermarket, um Buy Mart, canning stores, anywhere. Safeway has them.
4: Yeah, Walmart has them. Yeah. You can, they're not expensive.
10: You can just, they come in a little square flat. And so after I would fill them, I'd just put them all back in there. And then I could just stack those as a little tower and then, you know, hand them out as gifts for the rest of the year, which was also definitely something that you do when you have absolutely no money and people are like, oh, we're having a New Year's Eve party. And you're like, I brought you jam. And they're like, oh. Great. Blueberry. Lovely. But it's nice. Has something to really, you can give people. Beyond canning, because sometimes, like right now, it's incredibly hard to find the metal lids that go on canning jars, or in some cases, the jars. That's actually, I was recently looking for more jar lids and ended up buying flats of jars instead, because as four different stores told me, there's a supply chain disruption in getting jar lids. There's also a lot of ways that you can preserve stuff with drying. You can also do a lot with salt, vinegar, and sugar preserving as well so that you don't necessarily need uh, the resealable jars or like new lids for that. So there's a bunch of different methods, um, lacto-fermentation as well, like fermenting things. So what would you like to talk about first? What do well, we- Let's
4: start with just like what is what is the actual process of canning beyond like just dumping stuff into a can and sealing it?
10: Um so there's canning by itself is sealing jars with heat. So that was oh god really div- really came into its own around like World War II. Mm-hmm. It was like industrial canning and the thing about it is there even within canning there's two different types. There's low heat and high heat canning. Low heat is actually just boiling water temperature. And high heat, you actually need to go above the temperature of boiling water. So you can pressure can. Um, You need a pressure cooker. They terrify me. I don't pressure can because I haven't quite gotten over the images of when they explode and give people steam burns. Mm -hmm. Uh, I know plenty of people who do pressure can, and it's great for them. You can pressure can at high heat heat anything. You can toss raw fish or raw meat in oil in jars or in water in jars and you can pressure can it and it will cook and seal the jars and it is very safe. Low temperature canning is still relying on one of the other methods like salt, sugar, acid for the to keep down bacteria. So all it does though is it makes the same so you can do this with or without canning, it just makes the jars keep a lot longer because it preserves them. So it's the process of you take a jar and then you either use a clean ring if you're using those latching reusable jars with these nice rings on them that you can use over and over again. Really handy when there are supply chain disruptions to know that you can reuse yeah. your jar and ring. We're
4: talking about like the mason jars that you 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 would get in uh, bars that are too expensive five years ago. They would pour your terrible IPA in them. Yes. Yeah, yeah. but you well, can use them for other mm, things too. No,
10: these are the... <laughs> Well, there's two. There's well, they're the, the big, bigger. There's yeah. big jars that have a lid that is attached, and it latches. Oh, it yeah, with the
4: the clip. yeah, yeah, yeah.
10: And so those have a right. me, those have a rubber mm. gasket disc, thing gas yeah. that you can, and as long as you keep those oiled and clean, you can reuse those for years. They do eventually wear out, but they use a long time.
4: Yeah, the rubber the doesn't. The others mask. is
10: um, mason or ball canning jars, and those actually have a two piece top. They have a metal ring that you just need to make sure it's not like. Horrifically dented or rusted yeah, through.
4: It's, it's reusable for a very long time. And
10: then you have a lid, and the lid can only really—they they are recommended to only use once. I've reused them like twice. Only but you used to
4: can once. You can like once it's canned, yeah. and you're t- you can take stuff out, put it back on. You don't have to like replace the lid every time you get some preserves out. Yeah,
10: but the tiny piece of rubber that is what seals it is very thin, and so it's not very reusable for multiple can- batches of food.
11: And and true to form, you know, if you go looking around in, you know, rummage sales, vintage stores, whatever, you will probably find either very cheap or very overpriced. Some of those old hinged Mm -hmm. jars and
10: tons of mason jars and tons
11: of mason jars. You will often need to replace either the lids Or the rubber gaskets in order to make them safe to store food in.
10: But in either case, whether you're using the little, the mason or ball jars that you'll find in lots of stores or the big latching ones, um, the jars are the more expensive spot things. The lids and the rubber rings are more inexpensive to replace. So if you can find them at Goodwill, if you can find them at um, Goodwill Bins or other places... It's great. You should always grab them. Jars are never a bad idea. So canning, there's a million different ways to can. I do a lot of jams, jellies, pickles, and tomatoes, which are all things that are canned that are preserved either with acid or sugar in either case. Um,
5: jams and jellies being sugar and pickles and stuff being acid. Yeah. Yes. Yes.
10: Those are my two favorites. They're very simple to learn, and then you can always expand recipes and everything else. Um, but with pickles and tomatoes and other things, having the pH be very acidic is what actually does the preservation of the food and keeps down funguses, molds, bacterias, and stuff. And with jams and jellies, the natural acidity of the fruit mixed with a lot of sugar is what keeps the fruits hmm. from going bad or anything.
4: Yeah. And the great thing about canning fruit is that like when you, when you're thinking about what is the greatest number of free calories available to, to most people in a city during the seasons where fruit grows, it's often going to be fruit. And like you, you'd be surprised like where you could do like Los Angeles, where I used to live, there was much of the year, like seven, eight months. You, you could fill your arms with fruit if you knew where to go. And there's an app called falling fruit that you can use to find people mark like where different trees are. A lot of like you'll be surprised even if you think like well there's no fruit in my area. Good. Try falling fruit. You you may find that oh actually there's a shitload of fruit and I just was not looking. Or as you often find, I didn't realize that was an edible plant. I assumed those berries were were not food and and they can be. And and that's a lot of like free. It, it you know when you especially when you're making preserves, that's really calorically dense.
11: And and that also ties in with in the sort of survival utility aspect of this because like canning is fun and harvesting fruit is fun and having stuff you made mm-hmm. to yeah give steal pomegranates
4: friend. from rich people's houses do it
11: sure absolutely I mean, but part of part of the other thing to think about here is that like providing yourself with a reserve of different kinds of nutrition and mm-hmm. different like there's you get an assortment of stuff so you know you aren't having to constantly buy it because honestly, the most expensive in terms of carbon output, the most expensive in terms of of cost per calorie in grocery stores tends to come from the stuff that's, you know, been shipped up from mm-hmm. Argentina because it's not in season up here. Yeah, or that's whatever. why
4: you're getting grapes in January. Right. It's and not blueberries, you can actually grape.
11: watch them move all the way down the northern hemisphere mm-hmm. over the course of the growing season until they're like growing them down in Chile, right before they start being able to grow them again. So yeah, so just thinking about like the things that are available when they are available um and you'll see this all the time like the good forage spots when they're available there will be crowds of people all there all collecting stuff um and getting to know some of the things that you like and that grow near you and what time of year they come into season and maybe forming some relationships with people yeah. and being like hey i noticed you have a chestnut tree in your backyard, can I come and harvest chestnuts? Hey, you have this kind of oak. Can I come and get acorns yeah. from you because I want to do a leaching project? Yeah. Hey, I was grabbing
4: apples and I noticed that you're harvesting all these acorns. I didn't know that you could do anything with acorns. What is? What are you doing with all those acorns? Yeah.
10: And one of the greatest things, too, is that a good fruit tree makes a lot of fruit. So much. So, you know, we have a little plum that's near our house. A little plum tree. And since this year we managed to get to it before the raccoon did, that likes to clamber over the roof, we got about 250 pounds of plums off of the small fruit tree. And it is not very big. It has a footprint of maybe about 10 feet in diameter of the widest part of the mm-hmm. tree. But it drops quite a bit of fruit, especially if we get to it before it all drops on the ground and our cars and the driveway. In the walkway. In
11: the cat. In the cat.
10: But (laughs) if we get to it, it's a lot. So honestly, I set aside about a 50-pound tub that was like, okay, we're going to make some jam. We're going to dry some of these. We're going to do things with it. And the rest we were able to give to friends. We tossed some in the free fridges. We tossed some all, you know, we handed out because one good fruit tree makes a lot. So when you see fruit trees around town, when you walk under someone's cherry tree, it's okay to ask for. Fruit too, because I don't know anyone that uses every single piece of fruit off of any of their fruit trees.
11: And, you know, one of the things that you will see is that um, a lot of cities try to discourage people from planting fruit trees along roads precisely because when they come into fruit, they produce so much fruit that it causes a problem. Also, it's a good way to form relationships in your neighborhood. You say like, hey, we have a whole bunch of plums. We have a ton of whatever is dropping all over your front yard. And then your neighbors may be like, oh, those weirdos who were collecting fruit that one time, this tree in my backyard that's about to drop all this stuff. I'll let them know and maybe they'll come so I don't have to clean it up afterwards.
4: Yeah, which is again, like people, we talk a lot about the importance of building like community resiliency and community self defense. And folks ask, like, well, how do I actually do that? Well, that's maybe that's a start for you. Maybe the start is like, you get to know what do they have? What do I have? And then you start talking about, like, well, I'm going to can some stuff. Do you want to learn how to can? You're like, oh, well, I was going to dry these. Do you want to learn it? Like, or do you want to borrow my dehydrator? And then you're making connections that are very practical and also social in your area.
11: Also, one plug we've talked a little bit about the process of canning. Dehydrators are great and are pretty affordable. As, They're not expensive. Yeah, like I think, you know, for 60 to 80 bucks, you can usually get a decent dehydrator. Mm-hmm.
10: And if you don't have one, but you have an oven, yeah. if you put things on a baking rack.
11: Very low heat. Yeah. You
10: can just put it. I would just put, turn my oven on to warm and you can lay out things in your oven. I have a nicer oven now that won't let me do this. But when I used to live in like my first junky apartment I would literally just stick a metal spoon like a one of my big cooking spoons in the door of the oven so that it would open and that would just vent all of the steam of whatever I was drying in the oven so
11: and and meanwhile if you live in say a really dry climate or a climate where you have a really dry stretch of time when fruit is in season and you have window screens and an area where you can make sure there's a steady breeze flowing across your your fruit, cut it thin, lay it out in the sun, and that's why there's so much sun dried X Y and Z that's really expensive when you go to Trader yeah. Joe's or whatever.
4: And it's you know it's not just a matter we shouldn't just say that like this is you have to forage for all this stuff like it can be a matter of like well during these months beef is is much cheaper it's half yeah. as much as it will be later. I'm going to buy beef when it's cheap, and I'm going to make jerky now, and then I will have protein when I can't afford to purchase protein or as much protein later
5: in the year. Speaking of jerky, I mean, like one of the just in, in the vein of you know building your own dehydrate or something. One other thing that uh that that I've done is you can just get a you know a decent box fan and some furnace filters and strap them all together mm-hmm. and that can very successfully dry out jerky. Yeah. Um so de- dehydrators there's a lot of different ways to yeah. kind of Yeah. It your is own. it is
11: literally just kind of warm yeah. like 130 dry degrees and or less yeah. in some cases and
4: air that is moving and it's it's like everything we've been talking about there's the you can buy very expensive dehydrators if you want to if you want to get a primo jerky making thing <laughs> together you can you can make that a real expensive thing or you can do it for like trash like with with discarded crap that you find around in people's like take
11: piles and i think also the other thing to think about we were talking about it's not all foraging is to think about we've been talking about supply chain disruptions but also one of the things in our current circumstances is the weird gluts and mm-hmm. excesses and surpluses that are produced by our supply chains. And again, one of the big ways that I learned about food preservation was food, not bombs and food preservation. And also just Ooh. food preparation mm-hmm. was food, not bombs way back in the day. I feel like you need
10: a special sound every time on specifically it could happen here. Someone mentions food, not bombs at <laughs> this point. Food, that because... was
4: my entry back when i was just kind of a liberally journalist guy to like anarchist praxis yeah. was like every protest i go to there's these like crusty punks handing out sandwiches Yeah. yep um and, and they have neat yeah. stickers yeah. i wonder what's going on here
11: and well and one of the important things about food not bombs is that food not bombs has sort of two different ways that you obtain food for food not bombs one is you form relationships with grocery pe- stores with grocery farmers stores. yeah People who are going to have a lot of food, a lot of supply coming in, and there's stuff they're not going to be able to use.
10: Or sell. Either
11: because it's ugly or, you know, it's carrots that look like dicks and they don't feel comfortable putting the carrots that look like dicks on the shelf. Yeah, because it's just too hot. It's just too hot. (laughs) (laughs) Or, yeah, so you, you have your relationships with, like, local businesses and local suppliers who aren't going to be able to sell or use some of their stuff. And day they're like Great, old bread, right. Day <laughs> old bread. We are a bakery and we pride ourselves on fresh bread. So we're going to give our day olds and it makes us feel good as liberals to give it to food, not bombs. And then on the flip side, there's the, the fact that the supply chain is designed to produce these excesses, but then if it can't make money off of them, dispose of them, and that's where you end up with, you know, cops guarding, uh, cops guarding dumpsters, dumpsters for yeah. example, don't, Dumpster from the cops that the cop guarded dumpsters. Those they're, are the wrong dumpsters. Other dumpsters. dumpsters. To guard. Other dumpsters. <laughs> yeah. yeah, go to other dumpsters. I know I it's infuriating.
4: They're... It's very frustrating. I get the desire to yell at the cop, but there will you can
11: find dumpsters that are not also, guarded. Also, or you if you own a nice... store yeah.
10: or restaurant, you're legally protected to let people go through your dumpster. Mm-hmm.
11: Yeah, not to not it's to not like, on you. Yeah, yeah. The, during the Clinton administration, there's legislation that was passed that straight up said, like at a federal level. If you present, I think the wording is uh, seemingly wholesome and healthful food to people for free, even if it has passed its expiration date, that you are legally protected because it's dumb to throw out food just because the thing that's stamped on the package has expired. Now, that does mean if you pick up some meat that's expired and the package is puffy, don't eat that. Yeah. And it
4: also, there are also local ordinances and local laws that do restrict that more because there are places where people get arrested for handing out food to like, you know, homeless people and whatnot, but you know, check your local laws before doing anything as radical and violent
11: as giving out food. As giving out free food to poor people. Yeah. Yeah. There are these gluts. um, And there are these points where the supply chain is going to dump huge amounts of stuff into the system. For example, Right now, we just talked about how canning supplies are kind of in short supply right now, which is weird. I guarantee you that that means in a couple of months, there's going to be tons of canning supplies yeah. everywhere. Or, you know, when there were power outages in Portland, then there was a bunch of stuff. Even stuff that doesn't need to be refrigerated was getting thrown out if it was stored in the refrigerated section. Yeah. Um, Because stores have their specific protocols about like, oh, well... If this is left, if this freezer is unplugged, we have to throw out everything in the freezer. Never mind that a bunch of stuff in the freezer straight up says right there on it does not require refrigeration.
10: Or only refrigerate after opening. Or refrigerate yeah.
11: after opening. So think about like where are your local systems going to produce these huge gluts? Or maybe it's super cheap at certain times of year. You know, you maybe corn goes down to like... 15 cents an ear or five cents an ear at the end of
10: at the end of of August. Right.
11: So maybe you can get a whole ton of corn and then you can dry it like, you know, you have options. When
10: I was a kid, we lived in California and we were not doing a ton of canning. I did not grow up canning. I didn't grow up preserving food. I didn't in that type of way. But one thing that my mom would do is when our little Meyer lemon tree was covered in lemons. She would just juice a whole pile of them and then pour it into ice cube trays and then empty the ice cube trays into gallon bags. And then we had lemon, you know, we would make lemonade all year round. And her Mm -hmm. recipe literally called for three lemon cubes to how much sugar and stuff as she had it measured out. And so she would just pop those in and that would just live in the refrigerator all year round was just constant lemonade.
11: One other plug in terms of preserving stuff that I want to talk a little bit about, but i have with the disclaimer that I am by no means an expert. Um, One of the other things that, you know, the punks of yesteryear with their Food Not Bombs houses got really excited about was things like kraut and kombucha. Um, And there are some really great resources out there, specifically um, Wild Fermentation and The Art of Fermentation, which are both by a guy named Sandra Katz, on how to ferment food without, you you know, you're using naturally occurring bacteria, And fermentation as a means of preservation is possibly the oldest means of deliberate food storage that human beings have. And you can do it with a wide variety of things. And so, again, if you're faced with one of those gluts where you have a ton of stuff and nowhere you can store it in your refrigerated storage areas, there's probably a way you can jam it, you can dry it, you can ferment it, you can you know make vinegar out
4: yeah. of it and you can find guides for all of this for free online like all of this is accessible if you have a phone there are people and people putting up videos on YouTube where you can watch them do it too to make it you do not have to purchase books in order to learn
10: there's also a lot of ways you know you can make cold storages in your backyard you can definitely like I have a lot of guides on how to make your own root cellars in very small spaces and do things because as long as you're not having your food produce the thing that makes it that makes your food go bad. Yeah, mm-hmm. <laughs> There's a lot of different ways that you can prevent food spoilage, but that you can learn from. But honestly, crowd and canning are probably some of the quickest yeah. and easiest.
11: And yeah. as a general rule, um, mm-hmm. you know, it, similarly, if you don't have access to building a garden, you probably also don't have access to like digging a root cellar. Yeah. That being <laughs> said, if you it's have a much. room or a space in your house, where you can reliably keep it cool and dark, like below, mm-hmm. I don't know, 70 degrees. Closets. And dark. Yeah. Like closets. There's probably a spot in your basement if you live in a house where you have a basement.
4: Or if you live in a basement, because you're if you live in, in a legal renting situation. Right.
11: Yeah. Um, it's pretty easy. And for that matter, when we talk about like root cellars, there are totally some DIY schematics for literally digging a like three foot cube hole in your yard and sinking in something to line it. And then that's where you store stuff. Because if you dig down a few feet below ground, it stays 50 degrees year round.
4: Yeah.
7: So,
11: And I, I get
4: like, when you hear again, we keep coming back to this. Like, I think a lot of people get uh, overwhelmed or get very anxious when they think about trying to build resiliency because they live in a tiny apartment. They don't have much in the way of money. The important, one of the most important things to understand is that, like, a lot of people, no matter how poor you are, poorer than you, have have been doing this kind of stuff for generations. Like, it's why most of our grandparents survived the 30s. Yeah.
10: And I think one thing that people have a misinterpretation of with canning and stuff is that they are going to put stuff up and they're going to, like, put up their cans in their jars and then they will eventually build this, you know, I have food for 12 years buried here. Nothing has that. Great of a shelf life. I mean, yeah. I've definitely uh, pulled out some jam that was from 2014. I definitely didn't do that this year that I had forgotten in the back of a cupboard and eaten it. And it it's was fine. fine. It's fine.
4: But usually a couple, three years. Yeah, couple.
10: But the idea of canning and preserving was not that you are saving food in case the sky falls in and everyone is doomed. The reason that people preserve food was to extend the bounty of a harvest season for a few additional weeks or months. And if you think about it that way, you're extending what you have to times when it would be more enjoyable to eat it when it feels special.
4: No, I mean, it's like jam. A big part of the reason for jam is there's really important nutrients in fruit that maybe you can't get in the
11: dead of winter, but you can if you have jam. Just to be a farm nerd for a minute, because, Robert, I know that you are a huge fan of pumpkin spice. Oh, the reason that I just had my first
4: cup of the season today. It's amazing.
11: Monster. The the reason that pumpkins and cinnamon and apples Clove. and baking goods, baked goods with raisins in them are all like a big deal and are all like apples are a fruit that if you put apples in say a barrel. There's the saying about one bad apple, because if you make sure that an apple isn't rotting and you put it in a cool, dark space with decent ventilation, apples will keep for a very long time. Squash are a big deal. Pumpkins are a big deal around this time of year because buttercup squash, for example, and butternut squash are both storage squash. They taste better if they have been sitting in a dark, storage area for like two months Mm -hmm. then they have metabolized more of their starches into sugars and they're tastier a lot of a lot of like squash root vegetables all of that sort of stuff that you associate with you know fall harvest season is specifically storage crops because i'm originally from new england that's the time of year where you stop being able to get food out of the ground and everything freezes and dies and then it doesn't start up again until April and you need a way to like keep eating in the meantime.
10: And also, though, let's just remember that a lot of preserved foods are also meat, not just because they are a substitute or because they're saying the harvest, but because in order to preserve the food and keep the nutrients you have to go through a process. You want to have the salt be too high or the acidity be too high or the sugar content be too high or the water content be too low to enable bacterial growth and so that the fruits and vegetables and meats or whatever don't rot. But that means that you get so many awesome and different flavors that you would never, you know, grapes, grapes are great, whatever. Grapes preserved in wine vinegar, that sounds really cool. You can do that. And then you have a completely different thing that you normally don't eat you know, dried, uh, dried figs, apple chips. Like you also get a whole new variety of foods that are not just extending and harvest, but are also other things to eat. You know, my kids are not going to toss a whole pile of fresh fruit in their backpack sometimes because it squishes at the bottom of their backpacks. And I find it weeks later and it's absolutely terrifying.
4: Unfortunate. Yeah.
10: On the other hand, a bunch of, you know, dried, uh, dried prunes, Plums and stuff from the garden that dried out, they'll take baggies of those. And if I find them a month later because they didn't eat them, it isn't the end of the world either.
11: Yeah. And and again, like there's a lot of fun stuff like, you know, yeah, grapes by themselves are, are fine. You can also turn grapes into stuff that will help you preserve other stuff and raisins in baked goods. If you've ever had a loaf of raisin bread and a loaf of white bread in the same bread box, the white bread will mold first. Raisins are actually a preservative. It's why people started putting raisins in bread.
4: Yeah. And I, I think we should, we should close out, but I kind of wanted to do that by circling back to the overall topic of this week, which is like building resiliency when you don't have much in the way of money or resources and one of the things that you may not think of as building resiliency is exactly what you were talking about, being in you, Elaine, paying attention to what is available, what time of the year, what is cheap, what time of the year, what is like when do the gluts happen and when do the the shortages happen? Because that doesn't actually cost any money. You don't even have to buy things. Like you're already you're all, always going to be going out to the store to get food occasionally. It's 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 keeping an eye on understanding what is available, growing naturally and what is available in the economy because that connects you more to the environment you live in, to the climate as it changes, um, and to your community, all of which make you more resilient and none of which costs you a dime. It just costs you attention.
11: Also just a plug for, you know, people who have access to the ecosystems where this is relevant, uh, things like shellfish licenses are great. I'm not going to tell anyone that they should, you know, seek out, uh, sport fishing as a means of obtaining Mm -hmm. calories on the other hand in Oregon at least for I think it's five five bucks nine bucks oh it's up to ten bucks now but so for ten bucks get a shellfish license you go down to a cove and you rake cockles for an hour and then you have you know an enormous amount of food that you can do all of the preservation that we've talked about you can also just make chowder and freeze it you know whatever but there's a lot of ways to to cheaply obtain calories from out in the world. Yeah. All right.
4: Well, that's going to do it for us today. Um, until next time, remember, experiment on your friends with different medical care treatments. Nope. Don't do that.
10: Although, on the other hand, look up the, if you are in the Pacific Northwest, there is... The Portland Fruit Tree Project up here, which goes around and connects gleaners with fruit trees that need to be gleaned. Um, So people who have overabundant trees that they don't want all the stuff. That's a really great resource in other cities. I'm sure there's other things. And also the... Falling fruit maps. Yeah, the falling fruit maps. You can go online, and if there's not already one in your area, they also make it really easy to be able to chart and put in trees in your area. Mm -hmm. So if it's something that you're excited about and you love identifying trees, you can go in and actually start charting your neighborhood.
11: Mm -hmm. Also, figure out how to identify, you know, five wild plants that grow in your area that you can eat. Because... It's always nice to have more variety and it's fun to be out on a walk and be like, oh, cool. Now I have a thing that I can toss in with dinner when I get
4: back. Yeah. And we've talked about how there's like the poor version and the cheap version. There's also like the centrist version and the radical version of that. The centrist version is like, I just want to know like what kind of edible fruits grow naturally in my area. The more radical version is I'm going to start gorilla grows of edible foods on like available Seaballs. land in my area. Yeah, I'm going to seed ball some shit. It's, I'm going to like very going to get insurgent to with my, yeah, yeah, to prepare food. Yeah.
11: Th- things that grow rhizomally. Mm-hmm take root real easy in the ecosystems mm-hmm. they like and are real hard to get rid of once they get yeah. going.
10: Plant crime gardens. I'm not going to s- s- <laughs> say people should tear out the random trees that cities plant and then replace no, them no with apples. No, no one would say that. Of
4: course not. I'm but... just saying
10: that if you were but it's to, possible
4: to do
11: trees <laughs> yeah. that didn't make food with trees that did make food in the same spot, probably mm-hmm. nobody would notice except the people who got food and, and there
4: would be more free calories in your area if, you know- the kind of things that have been happening the last several years continue to happen. All right, that's the episode. That's the
7: episode.
4: <laughs> Bye. Hey, we'll be back Monday with more episodes every week from now until the heat death of the universe.
9: It could happen here as a production of Cool Zone Media.
0: Happy Pride from Tomboy X. We just dropped our Pride 24 collection. Queer founded, queer run, and creating size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies, so
3: you feel comfortable in your own skin. Visit tomboyx.com to shop. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast growing health and wellness industry.